You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. Hi, very good morning to you. Welcome along to OTB AM. It's Wednesday morning. Yes, that's right. It is Wednesday. He says, fully confident that he may be wrong about the day of the week because, you know, Christmas isn't quite over for most people, certainly judging by the traffic this morning. But uh, Christmas is definitely over for the football fan in your life because a lot has happened. Uh, the table looks a bit weird since last we were here, Owen. Yeah, life looks a bit weird. The Premier League table has taken on a life of its own. There's just so many games and there's it's like you've got the start of the season, then you've got Christmas, and then you've got the end of the season, basically, when it comes to the, the amount of crazy games, really, that we've seen over the last week. And it turns out Paul Pogba was good at football. Who knew? Well, we knew. We knew. We called it. It was a really hot take here that Paul Pogba was actually good at football. And uh, who would have thought that he would have just turned it on all of a sudden when, when Jose Mourinho was out of the dressing room? We've seen so many players do this in the past. He's gone full Eden Hazard on this. And, like, we don't, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here in terms of what... Uh, significance the whole Manchester United situation has for the future of football because it's probably largely insignificant. But really, when you, if any other player in the Premier League is looking around at what's happened at Manchester United and they're considering some sort of coup. protests or coup, uh, they're like, well, it's worked out pretty well for Paul Pogba there. Uh, it looks like things are going to be a lot rosier in the garden in a couple of months' time. It worked out fairly well for Aiden Hazard when he downed tools, if you can use that phrase, under Antonio Conte. Uh, the next real test is how Mesut Ozil gets on at Arsenal, and mm. I, I don't think that'll work out too well for him. No. So we might have some balance on the other side, but I think it's been a very, very good month for player power. I think you need to have your own emoji before you can start pulling that shit, though, right? Well, that, that's very true. Very true. Paul Pogba managed to get that down. That's Maybe maybe that's why Jose just uh, didn't warm to him, because there was no Jose Mourinho emoji, but uh, the, the emoji people let him down on that front. Like Paul Pogba, the performances over the last co- couple of days, obviously, have been sensational. The, the idea, though, that he was never a good player was ludicrous, really. Well, uh, you, can, you can... Okay, I, yeah, exactly, right? Listen, I'm not going to make that case, but you can see why people thought that perhaps he was a um, square peg round hole. Like, what, what, was, what is the role that you ask him to do on a game-to-game basis that is going to define games and win matches? And then it's like, oh, the, the thing that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer hasn't doing. Mm. Just come to do that. Yeah, well... Ole- see that works out. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is making management look like the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit weird, isn't it? There's, a, there's like, when the, first, when the first game happened, I was like, oh yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, Steve Staunton did hammer Sweden 3-0 in his first game with Robbie Keane doing cartwheels and Mick Byrne on the sideline going, yeah. It was like, oh, this is easy. But then, you know, week two and week three kick in and suddenly it's Cyprus wh- whipping us 5-2 and Paddy Kenny's in goals. Yeah, what is going to be uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Cyprus? PSG games? I mean... I don't know. I think it's not over. This isn't uh, this this little run of form isn't going to surely be the new Manchester United. He hasn't just unlocked the keys to like one of the most exciting, interesting teams in world football, has he? Well, he, if he has, then the knock-on effect for Jose Mourinho's future managerial oh. prospects are absolutely dreadful. He gone. They have to be. Like he's finished as a manager. If this little spark we've seen is real. But we do have to remember that their fixture list is, has been incredibly fortunate for him. And it's not fortune. Like, they knew exactly what they were doing, getting rid of Jose Mourinho when they did because they gave the new manager every chance of picking up nine points from nine in their first three games, which is probably going to happen when they beat Newcastle tonight, should they beat Newcastle tonight. Now, the thing is, like, when it comes to this idea of say, that front line, even if we leave Paul Pogba for a second, like Marcus Rashford... 
he's obviously made some sort of improvements just by getting a few years older over the last two years. But we just they've been covered up by I don't know the position he's been played or the mentality that Jose Mourinho had instilled in him. Yeah, you can. And see all of a sudden he's exploded over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, you can see that there was uh, like enough players there who were on the verge of doing that. Like you can see Martial getting much better under a manager who says, oh, "You're going to play every week. This is your role. This is what I want you to do. These are your responsibilities." If you don't fulfil them, we'll have a chat about it. Mm. If you do fulfil them, I'll go, yeah, good man, well done. As opposed to like the constant edge that you must have been on when you were playing for Mourinho. Not quite sure if he was going to throw you under the bus publicly. You know, there's obviously Rashford celebrating again. It's going to be a fairly common sight, I suspect, in the coming days and weeks. Michael Murphy is on um, our YouTube channel going, Keith Earl's 85-metre try, my highlight. Your highlight too? Yeah, Christmas? well, obviously. Uh, anything really from that game was my highlight. Just smirking, then grinning, and then beaming because the Munster-Leinster rivalry is alive. Well, you Despite know some, a lot of people on Twitter uh, during that game were like, some pundits were saying it's dead. <laughs> I know, I know. I, and I, was, I was like, like I, I wonder who they're talking about. You're not, you're not a pundit, I, I, was what were, I was thinking. There was, uh, I was glad that they weren't um, copying me in. My timeline would have been not much fun. But um, yeah, fair play. You know, you, you win a meaningless uh, game around Christmas and uh, the, I see comparisons with the team of 05 and 06. Well done, you won a European Cup for that. They, they were handing out uh, trophies at the end of that match, were they? More comparisons with uh, 2008, I think. Uh, Hugh Faraday, actually, in the Daily Mail this morning, has done uh, 2008-2018 best Munster 15. Uh, so I think those comparisons are also there. Uh, a team like, won the European Cup. Let's, 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 not, let's not forget this. A team for a won the European Cup, right? you're, you're, you're speaking, obviously, as a Leinster fan. They did win the European Cup. Am I got my years wrong? You're speaking as if... Munster were the only ones that cared about that game. Oh no, I'm, I'm sure. Night. As if, no, no, I, as if sure. it wasn't the two, three cards uh, on, that were given to Leinster men on the night. That it wasn't, you know, the out half putting the other out half to the ground like a ragdoll. Which I'm not going to lie, was pretty funny. Um, I, I did kind of, it did bring a, a right smile for me. Like you're speaking as if, oh, Munster were really up for it, and they caught Leinster off guard because they no, didn't no, care no. I, I'm just game. saying that, like, it's it's great that you won a trophy for winning that game. Well done. To all the Monster fans out there, congratulations. Uh, you, were li- you literally sat in the studio two weeks ago talking about Liverpool, saying, what is the point of football if everything has to be gauged by trophies? What is the point in any Liverpool fan supporting their team oh, right no, now no, if you constantly buy into the Jurgen Klopp has never won a trophy with okay, Liverpool okay, argument? Okay, okay. So, this is the exact same argument, but now it's against you, so you're not buying it. No, no, no. It's a completely, they're completely different points. I mean, like, uh, No, you can still enjoy I, Munster beating Leinster, particularly of, because of enough. how fiery it was. Absolutely. You can, I'm, and I'm, I've no doubt that you will enjoy that. But do you get a special trophy for winning that game is that like because it seems why, why do you keep asking like, that question what does that matter because it seems as if Munster think that they've arrived now because they won that game it's a big step forward from the performance and cast it is a big step forward definitely they were, there was a bit of bite about the team which clearly hadn't been there three weeks before that when European cup points were up for, for grabs well, the thing is that the cast game was actually refereed properly you might have had a similar situation to the one that Leinster endured where the referees were like this 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 ping, 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 get off the pitch for 10 minutes, you as well, and potentially even a red card. I'm not saying there was any red card uh, incidents. There was potentially one in the second cash game. But let's not forget as well the officiating in that game. Like, let's not be too quick to completely blame that on uh, Munster's mentality. And Munster shouldn't have had any yellow cards? Uh, certainly, when, I, when you look back in that game, cast were by far the filthier No, no, team. against Leinster. Filthier, oh, sorry, against Leinster. There was, okay, there was a bit of edge about Munster as well. Don't, don't get me wrong. You, you can't just absolve Munster of all blame and uh, kind of credit them entirely for, for what's happened. Look, fair play, I think it was there a There has been game. a marked improvement. It was a, huge, a huge step forward for Munster, particularly when you think that um, they still have a man need to come back into that team. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was great to see... It's so patronising, that tone. It was great to see um, Carberry 
nailing all his kicks as well because there just had been a little bit of that um, questions about that after various games recently and then it was also good that uh, at the end of the game they have like long term injuries coming back in to actually Tyler Blaindell looks fit like if Tyler Blaindell and um, Carberry are your two tens you've suddenly got the best depth situation in Irish rugby at the moment definitely that, that's they're fit and they play well that's an, that's an astonishing leap forward from where they've been for the last since O'Gara left. Yeah. Like, the thing is, as well, the whole question when you compare the two provinces, over the, particularly over the past 12 months, is where is the depth that Munster have in comparison to Leinster? And there was no question that Leinster have by far the bigger depth. So, you wanted to see a performance like somebody such as Finneen Witcherly yeah. uh, that you actually got the other day. Like, he's already got his iconic Munster moment. He does. His scrum cap was flung at him by the best player in the world. He's already reached iconic level. And uh, he also has the boyish face of, like, everybody else who comes through in that back row. Like, oh, hang on a second, is that Jack? No, who's... Okay. And his name sounds like J.K. Rowling came up with it or something. It's fantastic. He's got the whole package. He's, uh, that's what you want. He, he will be, obviously, a bench player when it comes to the big European games. Is he more a second row? Is that where he's come from? Is that, like, cause I would definitely have had him down as more of a second row until last week when he, obviously, had six on his back. Uh, so, obviously, a bit of a, a tag burn slash... Scott Fardy about him can kind of do a bit of both. Ty Byrne didn't do himself any um, damage with that performance as well. Uh, Finney Witchley is Finneen is twenty one and six or five. Like it's uh, this is, these are the type of players that you kind of needed to see coming through at Munster and putting down fifteen twenty games and going okay now I'm like everybody was going to start talking about me in that tradition. We just haven't seen enough of them recently because I think there was more South Africans and Leinster players on the team starting. For Munster, Dan, actual Munster, man. Yeah. I don't know the off the top of my head. I'm sure you would have noticed. Well, uh, look, it's not a. I mean, it's not a dig, right? It's like a statement of fact that they definitely need to improve the amount of players coming through. Anyway, uh, we'll come back to that a little bit later on. We've got um, Andy Dunn with us in studio around about half past uh, eight this morning. Munster not being able to easily beat teams down to 14 for a majority of the match should be a worry, though. Says Welton man. 60 minutes with 14 men, 10 minutes with 13. A win is a win, but Munster are vastly overstating their performance and the importance of this fixture. Leinster played 20-year-old Frawley for 20 minutes. Subbing Frawley for Sexton 20 minutes out, still a chance to win, shows what Leinster's priority was. Um, I saw somebody saying that was down to managing minutes as opposed to the injury. I saw someone say that as well. I'm not quite sure if that was the case. I, I would have said that if you're going to start Johnny Sexton, you probably got to know that he's going to play the full 80. Yeah. I, I, I would say that was the plan. I'm not quite sure what that was about. It looked like there was a knock. Yeah, he comes on and puts a nice pack on. <laughs> but like, and yeah, that's, that's the David Beckham. David Beckham got subbed off one time by Ferguson. Was like uh, ostentatiously wrapping up his hamstring, and Ferguson was asked about it afterwards. Was like, no, I took him off. Nothing wrong with his hamstring. But he, he was like, yeah, he's just having a petulant little. I, I mean, I would be amazed if that was. <laughs> I don't think that was what was going on. I see Contepomi was asked in the press conference about Sexton's captaincy. Like for me, looking at that performance, it's kind of like ah, even more captain material yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, it's like you kind of want to see that. Maybe, maybe it's not with within the, the values of the game that the kind of kind of I don't know conversations he tends to have with referee. But I found it particularly entertaining. Yeah, like it, there's no way that Sexton influenced the yellow cards that Furlong and um, uh, um, Healy Healy got. Like, there isn't. I don't think that had any impact. I don't think his captaincy, like, that incident with which had any incident, had any impact on the yellow cars. Like, the, bo- both are relatively unfortunate. I wonder what he said to Joy Carberry when he was on the ground that time. Yeah, that would be nice to know, wouldn't it? That'll, that's, that's the next thing we need to find out. It's like, uh, at one point, that'll come out. In ten uh, years' time, when they're, like, 
at a roadshow together. Yeah, well, exactly. There you go. There's, uh, there's your brief done for that. Um, okay, so let's uh, tell you what's coming up on the show this morning. Um, we're going to bring you to the sports pages 10 minutes ago. Uh, we'll uh, talk football from about 10 past 8. So go and uh, get the general mood music around Liverpool. Talk a bit more about James Coleman as well, obviously. Andy Dunn joining us around about 8.40 this morning. And uh, some more sports news from you, uh, from Darren, around about 5 past 9. Things are a little bit slower this time of year, just generally. Yeah, I, I guess everybody's, everybody's still on holidays, really. Like dry January doesn't start until like the seventh of January. Yeah. So why, why would you make it? Like it's an easy out. Exactly. Uh, let's bring you through the newspapers this morning. If you're back at work this morning, by the way, yeah, fair play to you. You know, at least a good half of our office are like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll come in, maybe I won't. Are you slapping yourself in the back there? I mean, no, not, I just like you know. Tottenham bounce back to coast past Cardiff after early goal blitz. Uh, Mark and Harry Kane would be a good idea, lads. Uh, Cardiff nil, Tottenham three. Um, and then afterwards, the Cardiff manager, Neil Warnock, is like, oh, it's not fair the Spurs are going to play their games in their new stadium. Ugh, there's going to be a betting in period for them at the new White Hart Lane. We had to play them at uh, Wembley. Everybody else had to play them at Wembley. The Premier League should make them play the games at Wembley for the rest of the season. I'm like, you are a dumbass. <laughs> they're far more likely to win every game at White Hart Lane than they are at Wembley. I, I'm not going to lie, until Neil Warnock said it, the thought had crossed my mind that there might be a small betting in period at, at White Hart Lane. But then Neil Warnock said it, so I automatically kind of have to disagree with him because I disagree with a lot of what he says. Except for the fact that actually, the one weird thing that's happened to me over the Christmas period is that I've started to warn to Neil Warnock. I've started to think to myself, we were like, we were, I think we, the phrase that was used on this show was that Cardiff were going to get relegated extremely hard from the Premier League. <laughs> extremely hard. And uh, Heartbreaks. It, it doesn't seem to be happening that way at all. And in fact... There's a high possibility they will avoid relegation. Now, if I'm, if I'm calling it now, I do think um, they're going to finish 18th, Cardiff City. I, I just don't think they have the squad sort of players around them or, say, the a manager in the ilk of Rafa Benitez to keep them up. I, I do think they're still in huge trouble, but I didn't think they'd be in the survival mix as healthily as they are at the moment, and they're not going to finish bottom. Um, yeah. I mean, so respect has to go to Neil Warnock for what he's done. Oh, look, uh, he's got a successful career in football management. Um, into his old age. Uh, Arsenal get back on track against Profligate and Porous Fulham. Fulham, was it a good idea to change the manager as early as they did? Should they maybe stuck a little bit? And well, Are they going to have to do it again? I, I don't know. Like Up until yesterday, it was their best run of form of the season. They'd gone three games unbeaten. Uh, they actually, there was a lot, as tends to happen at the Emirates Stadium, quite a lot at the moment is there was a huge sense of nervousness, particularly when Fulham got back to 2-1. They got a couple of chances then after that as well. It could have been a lot better for any for any area yesterday. So, like at the start, I thought you were bang on about him that it was a terrible appointment. But over the Christmas period, they've started to show a few more signs of a team that might actually be up for the fight and put some sort of run together. I could see him being gone by the end of January. <clears throat> that would be extremely harsh. And also, the Fulham hierarchy know that it's their fault, and then suddenly the fans' hatred goes towards them instead of the management. Uh, FAI to introduce term limits on board. This is a John Fallon story that's um, in many of the newspapers this morning. So the story here is the FAI stage an emergency general meeting next month to introduce term limits on all their on their all powerful boards. Sorry, not on all their powerful boards. So um, before Christmas, it emerged that the Department of Sport, Minister for Transport, Tourism and Sport, Shane Ross, mandated Sport Ireland to ensure that major bodies were compliant with the government code for community voluntary and charitable organisations by 2019. So basically this is, um, you need to introduce term limits of three years for all your senior officers on the board, and you can only have three of those terms, so a nine-year limit. Um, that would obviously have a major impact to the FAI, where Delaney has been uh, a director since 2001. Four others, Eddie Murray, 
Parry trainer Michael Cody and Jim McConnell are into their 15th year of directorship. So I wonder, though, do you grandfather this in? Is it nine years from now or is it nine years up to this point? So um, that bit wasn't clear from the way the story is written today, but I guess we'll get some more detail on that in the coming days. Uh, the FAI have issued a statement saying on New Year's Eve saying that they would complete their journey to compliance with the code uh, by February 2019. So that's not that long for us now to wait. It is isn't. It isn't that, indeed 2019 on. I can't confirm. This is January. February's next month. So oh. what happens is, so when you qualify for Qatar 2022, Shane Ross is the man who saved Irish football? Um, I don't know. Don't know. Is that, is do we have to thank him for every good thing that now happens in Irish football? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think we're going to wait and see how that one plays out. Uh, changing into a champion, Sinidipa Sport charts the twists and turns that put her on top of the world. Um, and then Kieran Shannon has a piece about Don Wooden, the um, basketball coach who coined the phrase the process. And uh, There's more to do with Nick Saban, that piece, and just how insanely... And she obviously Wooden came up with the idea of the process that uh, Jim Gavin has taken and made his own. Um, but I, I think, what, what is it, next Monday is the, the college football final. Yeah. And obviously, to actually win one college title in uh, the United States is insane just because of the amount of teams involved. But I think they're going for their six and eight years or something like that, Alabama, which is just an insane achievement. So uh, it's a good piece by Kieran Shannon. Apparently Nick Saban's a bit of an asshole, though, screaming at the, the kids on the sideline. Well, I, I'm not sure about that. But to, I guess, do you have to be an asshole to be at, at his level? I don't think so. Like he does, he does say that um, if there is uh, a match set for kickoff time around television at say two thirty nine, Saban will, will be there for the television interview at twelve thirty nine, not twelve thirty, because two hours before kickoff is two hours before kickoff. Like there is being punctual, and then there is being just a bit of an asshole. <laughs> maybe they're maybe they're the same thing. Yeah, maybe maybe. Uh, on to the Irish Independent this morning. So uh, it's about playing the right way. And Sis Solskjaer, who you know, it's just easy get out there. Smack them all their asses, tell them they're great, and away they go. United's interim manager pledges to keep positive approach as he closes in on Busby Mark. Um, what's the, what is the chances of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer getting this gig now? What does he have to do? Do you have to win the Champions League? No, you don't have to win the Champions League. You've got to, the thing is that he's not had to lay down a marker just yet. He's just had to do what is expected of Manchester United and pick up three points in the games that they're expected to pick up three points in. Like, if they take a scalp of PSG in the Champions League, then the conversation becomes a realistic one. I think at this point it is still too early to say Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is the man for the job. It would be stupid of Manchester United to not make a move for Maurizio Pochettino. No matter what Solskjaer does between now and the end of the year, Maurizio Pochettino is still a better manager than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Like he would, Solskjaer would, as you say, have to win the Champions League to stave off that. Now the thing is, Manchester United may well be unable to get Pochettino. They may well be unable to get someone like Zidane. And then they're looking lower down the rungs. Then is, is Laurent Blanc on that level? He's probably on a, a little on, on a rung below that. So then it becomes, say, a situation between Blanc and, and Solskjaer. Then what does Solskjaer need to do? And you would say not much, not not a whole pile more. Because once you get beyond those first two targets, the, the managerial world of options is actually a lot thinner. Um, although they they've been looking at your man Rose, the manager of Red Bull Salzburg as well, apparently. So they if they do a bit of a recon and try and get. Someone like, uh, say, Southampton tend to do, getting Pochettino in in the first place, or Hassan Hootel now, and uh, get, get a hipster's choice as manager. That could be the only thing that might stop Solskjaer. I don't think, I don't think Man United are going to go hipster. No, they won't. There's no chance. Uh, McElroy plays down loyalty towards European tourists. An interesting, um, so Brian Keogh has this piece here saying, 
Yeah, I've travelled the world for 12 years playing professional golf. I'm still going to be a world player, but I don't want that hopping back and forth over the Atlantic as much as I used to do. Um, it's not as if we all got handed starts, you've got to qualify to get on. A lot of guys have this sort of loyalty to the European Tour, which is great. Great, great for them. But my life's here. I live in the States and my wife is American. Everything is moving this way in the world. It just makes sense. I'm finally healthy. I'm feeling good. I've got the schedule I want and I'm settled in my life. And fair play. Ultimately, like, um, the European Tour can try and continue to compete. Or it can kind of be, like, friendly towards these players who are superstars coming from Europe and say, come on, come back. You know, we'll, we understand this is a long game. You'll still play for us in the Ryder Cup, won't you? Mm. Won't you? Like, he must, look, he must have been looking on with envy over the past couple of years as the likes of Spieth and Thomas and Dustin Johnson just managed to play on their one tour and really not have to, I guess, pay any sort of tribute to the European tour by playing events that they don't want to play. I'm not saying Rory McIlroy doesn't want to play the European Tour events he, he didn't want to play. I'm sure if it really came down to it and he felt it was badly, badly affecting his career, he would have taken a step back from them already. But he's probably at the stage in his career now where he's like, right, this idea of me perhaps racking up a few more majors has got to happen in 2019 or 2020. I've got to do every little thing uh, within my control to, to get that to happen. And stepping away from the European Tour, he's dead right. Uh, yeah, and it was it was like totally and utterly inevitable. The European Tour at some point is going to merge with the PGA Tour, really. That's like, maybe it already has in some respects. Coleman looked like McCarthy's first big call. It's John Fallon's talking point. Do you pick James Coleman to play for Ireland? Well, it, the difference is I'm not the manager. Mick McCarthy is the manager. Mick McCarthy's obviously got a very good relationship with Matt Doherty as well. I'm sure that won't come into play, but... You know, he certainly knows him a lot more than Martin O'Neill knew Matt Doherty. I think that's fair to say. Uh, so is that going to become a factor in his decision? It might do. Like, club form is obviously going to be a massive factor, which, needless to say, puts Matt Doherty well above Seamus Coleman in that role. The thing is, like, Seamus Coleman, we've seen him dropped as captain to the bench for Everton. Like, a, a captain to the bench from, for the Republic of Ireland as well is now not such a far-fetched um, possibility. <sighs> It's, it's very, very tough to say. I think if he continues to not play for Everton, Matt Doherty probably leapfrogs him, doesn't he? If you're not playing for your club and there is a player playing week in, week out for the team that are just as good as Everton are at the moment in, in the Premier League, you've got to pick that player. Yeah, but do you? Do you not also have to like, go? Like the thing is here, like, Coleman could come back into the Everton team and there might be some sort of... Uh, he, he might salvage something from the season yet. Yeah. I do think we're very quick to say this slump in form is the real kind of tail end of his career or it's the beginning of the end of his career and there is evidence to suggest it might be but it, it, there, are, there have been cases where sometimes an injury like the one he sustained has just taken an extremely long time to come back from. Yeah, exactly. I think that there's a very good chance James Coleman regains form and I would not be dropping him from the Ireland team at any stage just now. I'd be trying to find a way to find well, it's, a space for him and Matt Doherty. I see Cyrus Christie getting mentioned in that conversation as well. I mean, that's not right. Well, he is a starting right back in the Premier League. You have to, you have to mention him. Yeah, but like, is he as good as either of the other two? You, d- you don't drop Seamus Coleman for Cyrus Christie at right back. No, you you, you have to consider dropping him for Matt Doherty. You, you just have to. If there's if you're going to play a, f- a flat back four and only one of Coleman or, or Matt Doherty can get in the team, it's ridiculous to not consider dropping Seamus Coleman, right? I don't know. I I don't know. You have to consider Matt Doherty. Uh, I mean, like certainly there's a conversation to be had, but. Um it's not ridiculous. Exactly. It's not ridiculous to have the view that your captain and best player for the last half a decade is untouchable. It's going to be the player that you're going to build around for the next two campaigns. And so Matt Doherty's form needs to be way better. Like it needs to be ast- astonishingly. It needs to be okay. 
I'm going to completely change the fabric of my team. I'm, I'm going to look for new leaders in my team. I'm going to look for the, some. I'm going to look for that person who will come out and defend what we're doing and do the job that James Coleman has done for Ireland under very difficult circumstances mm. over the last year and a half. And you you can't, you can't overstate that enough. That so, and, like it's not just a like for like replacement then because maybe we overstate the value of that. But at the same time, you, th- you just think in the dressing room, people are looking around to James Coleman and going, "Well, he's done it for a long time and he's put it in, and he hasn't been blabbing away the way." Uh, Matt Doherty has like you know that that counts for stuff right yeah he, as in he's re- reacted with or he, he's behaved himself with great integrity and he's been a model professional all throughout his career like there's no question about that and, and I'm not saying it's an automatic decision here I'm just saying that can Mick McCarthy afford to go into the next campaign and say oh no Seamus Coleman is untouchable of course he can't he's just got dropped for his club and a player who would fulfil who would step into his shoes is playing with one of the most promising teams in the Premier League and has had a pretty bloody promising uh, season himself. He's picked up a Player of the Month award. Like it's, it, it definitely has to be a debate that the Irish managerial team are having. Now, the debate, if you're, if you're talking about building a team around a player, well, then the option of three to back with wing-backs obviously becomes a realistic potential in, in terms of getting them both in there. And I know uh, it's been touted before and... Like I, I don't know how well that's actually going to work from an Irish perspective. Like how good really is, is Matt Doherty or Seamus Coleman going to be on the right of a back three? That that certainly is a, is a huge question mark about the whole thing. Yeah, it's worth trying though, right? At some point. Definitely, and it helps with Gibraltar's first up. Yeah, I mean, you'd like to see him in a good, I don't know, obviously every game is a qualifier until the friendlies, but um, sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and go for it. Sometimes. Uh, I've got the tabloids here. The back page of the Irish Daily Mail this morning is Harry New Year. Now Kane scored against all 28 Premier League teams he's faced. That was the statistic during the rounds yesterday. The only player to do so, uh, to have a 100% strike rate. Not if you include like players who've kind of only played once against players, or once against teams, I should say. Uh, Leinster now on everyone's target as well, warns Sean Cronin. Uh, back page of the Herald is Pogba sites on Ron Record. United Ace now looking to make a third time lucky, while Spurs back in the title hunt. Uh, Harry Kane picture there as well, celebrating his goal yesterday afternoon. Back page of the Sun this morning is Scouse of Cards, Pep confident of Cop Tumble while Inter plot to snap up Young. So Inter Milan are prepared to launch a bid uh, to sign uh, Ashley Young, uh, which is an interesting story during the rounds this morning. Transfer rumours in full flow as the January transfer market opened uh, 48 hours ago, or 24 hours ago at this point. Uh, back page of the Irish Daily Star is Gappy New Year. Liverpool's lead, not a burden for Klopp. You've also got Green Giants treble yell. King of the world, Michael Van Gerwen, uh, winning his third PDC World Arts Championship last night, Jer. Did you watch it? No. Why? You didn't want him to watch an artist life at work? Is, life is too short to, uh, for me to make room for darts in it right now. I, I would say there's not, a, not enough room in life for darts. Well, how, how was it, Owen? It was, it was uh, not as enjoyable as some people were predicting it to be. I, I, I'm not going to lie, I didn't follow uh, this year's World Darts Championship as much as I've previously done. I know. Uh, because, shit. Go on. Why not? No, because it, it's actually too good for me. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. And when Margaret was saying beforehand, this could be one of the greatest finals of all time, so naturally I started to get excited. And uh, unfortunately... So the hype sucked you in? Uh, no, I was going to watch it all anyway, uh, just to see if uh, plucky underdog Michael Smith... But then you watched it and it turned out it was crap. 
No, Michael Smith bottled a lot of uh, finishes. He was he was keeping pace with him really on the big numbers for the first couple of sets, and it was just his finishing was atrocious. He just crumbled under the pressure. He said he actually when he went backstage between one of the sets, uh, he punched a wall and he think he broke his, he broke his hand. Which, like to be honest with you, if you're a darts player, br- breaking your hand in the middle of a game isn't exactly a good idea. Now I don't, I don't think it was his throwing hand. He didn't specify, but that was uh, things were only going to get bad to worse for him when he punched the wall. I think. Uh, but Michael Van Gurren, he's a, he's a machine. Uh, it's. I was just rereading that interview that Donald McRae did with him in, in 2014, and he's uh, he, he uh, refers to him as um, Uncle Fester, and it's just constant Frankenstein or Adam's family after Adam's family sort of pun throughout the article, which is uh, you, some people could say mean spirited, but you would probably say it's kind of funny. Yeah. The, the green giant. Uh, back page of the mirror is anxious and nervous. Silva admits everything are feeling the pressure after worst home run since Martinez was sacked. And the back page of the Guardian is Reds put on alert. Silva insists City will attack Liverpool in title showdown. Well, they're not talking about getting rid of Marco Silva, are they? At Everton? Um, they, yes. yes, anxious and nervous, sorry. Um, Silva admits everything are feeling the pressure after worst home run since Martinez was sacked, as I said, was the headline there. So, well, like this is the thing that's been doing the rounds over the last couple of days. So, Everton's form, to say it's Patchy would be doing them uh, a huge service, I think, at this point. Like, at, at what point do, do you have to look at Marco Silva and say, your head's on the chopping block here? Well, like, because. I was thinking about this, right? So, like, what, what is. Everton want to be a top six club, right? They want to be a team who, on their very best year, can somehow squeak in to a Champions League place and, and build that way. Is it possible they can do that by having chop, 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 chop manager? Or do they actually need a little bit of stability at the club and say, OK, you're going to be here three years at least and this is our strategy and this is our transfer strategy and we're going to buy players according to this. We're going to try and get as many through as we possibly can from the academy because we've traditionally been able to do that and um, this is your salary restrictions and this is the amount of players you can sign. Can you do that by... Chopping the manager, like who, who has done that successfully? Chelsea, obviously, but with the investment of a billion, which Everton clearly aren't going to make. So <coughs> there's no other way of doing this, surely, without keeping him or somebody deciding who who is your person and then sticking with it. All valid points. Like I, I think Everton's head might be turned by what's going on around them in the Premier League. They look at clubs like Wolves and Watford sort of nouveau riche almost of the mid to lower rungs of the Premier League table and you don't want to say there's like a chop-chop nature to that certainly not with Wolves because they came with a plan to conquer the championship and they did it successfully and they came with a plan to survive in the Premier League and they've done that very, very successfully. There is just sort of a different approach to the way Everton do things and you do wonder if the way that they feel to keep or to not stay static is to just change manager quite regularly when things don't go well. Because I, th- I think you always get to a stage every single year with Everton where you're like, if they could only just replicate this on a more consistent basis, which is surely going to happen from next August onwards. And it just never does. It never materialises in that way. And I think the, the Christmas period has just epitomised Everton over the past couple of years. Like, a couple of dreadful results. One very, very good result. And that, that, that's been it. And it's like... Uh, the, the situation with Seamus Coleman now you'd wonder how the fans are going to react to that yeah well we're, we're going to talk about Coleman a bit more now um, uh, let's play you this first it's Mark Lawrenson on Seamus Coleman's struggle to get back to his best after his spell on the sidelines yeah yeah quite possibly but it, you know it, it comes to everybody in the end and it was horrific injuries as everybody knows and he got himself back and he looked good. In, in fairness, today to, to Everton, John Joe Kenny, the local boy, has been playing it right back, and actually he's been one of the one of the better players. But um, yeah, it's just for Seamus, it's father time, I'm afraid. So 
Um, he's just basically got to get on with it. But it's, it's obviously really, really difficult when you've been such a good player. When you when listen, when when you think about him and Baines on the other side, I mean, I mean, they were absolute. Was there a better pair of fullbacks in the time? I'm not sure that there was. Yeah, well, I mean, Coleman was always regarded as one of the best in the Premier League and constantly linked with a move to a bigger club. Never yeah. happened for him. And now I wonder, does he regret that he didn't go maybe when he had the chance? Oh, I, don't, I, I don't think so, because I think if, if he'd really wanted to go and put his foot down, you know you know what football's like nowadays, if you kind of say, I want to go, it's very, very difficult for anybody or any team to, to keep you. I think he, he knew what he had at Everton, um, and, it, and in many, many ways, um, not you know we talked about the fullback partnership. You'd argue they, they were possibly the two best players week in, week out. And um, yeah, everybody looked at him. I mean, obviously, you know, David Moyes signed a Binny, and uh, I think he says he's probably the best buy he'd ever ever made. So, and he's been a great servant, obviously, for ourselves as well. But uh, you just you got to get on with it. It's life, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's uh, Mark Lawrence in a conversation with Phil on Premier League Live at the weekend. Dominic King of the Daily Mail is on the line. Dominic, um, obviously we've been talking a bit about Everton there and uh, we'll talk about Liverpool in a moment. But just your thoughts first on Seamus Coleman. Um, Ten years yesterday to the day that uh, that bargain signing was made. So Everton have definitely got their money's worth. Are we entering the end of days for Seamus Coleman at Everton as a starter? Or <clears throat> is there a, a second act to come here? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to... Um, I wouldn't like to be the one to say he's finished. Um, I've, I've seen uh, I've seen Seamus um, develop over the last ten years, and I've just been listening to what um, Mark's been saying, and he, he had it absolutely spot on. I think Everton had the best two fullbacks pairing in the in the country for for a spell. Um, that injury that he received was absolutely horrific, and what he did to get back, um, and the form that he showed when he when he when he came back at this time last year was was absolutely magnificent. Now he's hit he's hit a spell recently where it's not been so good, where he's uh, he struggled for he's looked like his confidence has been hit, and um, I think there's, there's been sections where the, of the crowd getting on his back. But uh, what is he? Is he? He's, he's not thirty yet. I think he's he's, he's still. I think he's just still, 30, he's twenty-nine. I think you know. It, it, I think there was going to be a point after coming back from a long-term injury where he was going to he was going to have a blip, and I hope he gets through it because he's a, he's a great lad. He he um, he loves he loves Everton. Um, they've, they've made his they've made his life for him, if, if you will. You know that the he came from he came from Sligo, Kelly Beggs, and um, he's. he's it's a proper old-fashioned story, isn't it? You don't hear of those transfers anymore where, for a nominal amount of money, someone comes and then becomes a household name. And he's he's been absolutely fantastic for Everton. What a servant! Um, I just hope this is I hope this is a different form and not something um, not something more progressive. Yeah. Just a, a quick one on that, Dom. Sorry. Uh, at the weekend, Everton they played uh, a back three with wing backs and uh, a back five, if you like. And, and Colin was obviously. Uh, distributed as a right wing back. Do, do you think that that was uh, a method specifically by Silva to get the best out of Coleman as a last ditch attempt in this current lull of form to try and make sure he stays in the starting team? And then when perhaps it didn't go so well for him at the at the weekend, I think it was Saturday they played. Then obviously he got dropped for yesterday. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I'm, it's a difficult question to answer that because it's been a bit mixed and match at, at the minute with Everton. At the minute, you, you don't really know what Marco Silva is going to do from from one game to the next. They're a team in the sort of um, 
I'm not going to say like a sort of spiral of of uh, of lacking confidence, um, but the la- the last month has been has been dreadful, and the performances haven't been good. And he's he's he's, lo- he's looking for ideas to try and make things make things happen a, a bit better for them. Um, they were they were awful yesterday. Um, they didn't deserve anything from the match. Um, and I don't know whether they've, they've had four games in ten days, and maybe Seamus was feeling the effects of that. Um, I think all will become apparent when they when they play Bournemouth in the next Premier League game. Um, I think he'll he'll make changes against um, Lincoln in the FA Cup on Saturday, but um, until uh, until we see them again in the Premier League, I, I don't I don't know what 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 we could say whether he's going to refer to a a back four, whether three at the back is going to be the, the way to go because. Yeah, he's taking Yeri Mina in and out, so there's nothing settled at the minute, and and that's what he he really needs to do. Yeah, that's interesting because we were just chatting before we started this piece about what the strategy long term for a club like Everton should really be, and whether or not this is the right manager to take the club forward. And I'm making the case that at some point Everton need to decide somebody is the right guy, and they're going to give them the opportunity to work this stuff out to kind of learn a little bit on the job, in the hope that they develop into. A Pochettino or somebody at that level. Um, from the sounds of what you're saying, I'm not sure that maybe they've got the right man at the moment. Or I guess the the wider question is: Are the club inclined to look for somebody at the moment? Oh no, no, I, no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think to be looking for anyone at the minute. They, they went through. Um, <clears throat> they, they went through a, a big process to get Marco Silva, um, and they're obviously still in um, wrangling with uh, Watford at the minute over. Um, Compensation and, and and whatnot uh, for for how we how we left and what they the the, the charge that Watford levelled against them. Um, Everton couldn't keep um, Farhad Mashiri, the, the, the major shareholder. He couldn't start sort of um, acting on a whim and as soon as things go wrong, make a decision to get rid of someone because he's already spent thirty five million in, in severance fees since he's been at the club, um, and that's just. That's the road to the ball house. They, they 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 could not they could not carry that on. Um, it was only only five weeks ago we, we were writing pieces about how things were looking up for them, how they'd been on a good run, and they they drawn at Chelsea, and the the form was getting better and better. And listen, they're having a bad they're having a bad point, um, and they have to address it. Um, it would be it would be ridiculous to sort of start making knee jerk. Um, Assessments, and I seen some of it on Twitter last night from from supporters saying, "Oh, he's he's not the man. He's he's not the man." Well, he's had six months, and you know, there's still a lot of players that need to be changed, and a lot of things that need to be um, addressed. So, you know, he, this season, you know, he should be given this season to to, to show what you know that he can, that his, his, his plans can be built in the long term, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Um, let's move on and talk about Liverpool because they, they find themselves in this um, remarkable situation where they've got a massive lead at the top of the Premier League table. When we all assumed that there was going to be a title race this year, it would be them trying to stalk Manchester City. But Man City's wobble has happened and Liverpool have been able to exert the uh, full advantage um, from that wobble. What, what's going right for Liverpool at the moment? Uh, well, everything really, um, com- full of confidence. Um, every player that is uh, he's playing is in form. Um, 
they've they've had no injuries um touch wood to uh, you know the the real core players um you know of 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 Salah van Dijk uh, Allison those type um is the, the 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 tweak that he made to his team to play 4-2-3-1 rather than 4-3-3 has has paid dividends because they 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 look um sharper and the the, the more um more of a threat in the area uh, and, and everything is going really well, and they've they've, they've come through. The, whereas just talking about how bad December has been for Everton, for Liverpool, it's been it's been the stuff of dreams because they've won every game through to the Champions League last sixteen, and the lead they've got in the in the in the title race is um, is very very encouraging indeed. Yeah, the, the formation change has been fascinating, really, going from the 4-2-3 for the four, to the 4-2-3-1. And Roberto Firmino, it, prior to the Arsenal game, people were saying things like, well, Roberto Firmino's form is off, but you could kind of accept that and the fact that his a, a sort of different position allowed perhaps Mo Salah's form to take a, a huge upturn. And then suddenly Roberto Firmino goes out and scores a hat-trick. So literally everything uh, is going right for Liverpool at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting on Firmino. I was, I was looking at his, um, his figures from... Um Last season, after this many games, compared to this, um, and it's there's a very sort of tiny um, discrepancy in terms of um, goals and assists and whatever. Um, I mean, people said that he's, you know, he's been out of form and maybe not having the influence in games and that, that that he should have been. But if you look at his numbers in terms of how much he's running, how much he's, um, how much he's on the ball, how much he's, how many chances he's creating for his teammates. It, it, it all stacks up to last season when we were, we were saying that he was uh, he, he was one of the best in Europe. Um, he, 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 if he's if he's starting to click now um, in, and he's starting to have an influence in in this position, then um, then that really is that really is a sign that Liverpool are going to be potent because Firmino he's fabulous. He, he, I think he goes under the radar. I, I mean, this might sound a daft thing to say, but I think he's probably one of the most underrated world class players in the game at the minute. He doesn't get the headlines that he should have because of because of Salah and Van Dijk and and Allison and one thing and another. But um, he was he was he was immense on Saturday and he looked from from the first minute. He, he, you could see that he was he was ready to go. And if he's if he's going to build into a, a a run of form, then you know Liverpool are going to score a lot lot more goals. We were kind of speaking off air, I was kind of musing as to what are the odds on Fernandinho to win uh, Player of the Year because by his absence he's been talked up to this uh, status <laughs> of being perhaps Manchester City's most important player. And there may be an element of truth in that. Certainly you take him out of the team, Manchester City's results dip. Do you think there's a player in the Liverpool team that if they got injured or they were absent, similar to Fernandinho, where they have a good player to replace him, but that player, like Ilkay Gundogan, couldn't do, can't fulfil that position quite well and the results would subsequently dip? Um, I wouldn't want to tempt fate, but um, I would say I would say Van Dijk. Um, Van Dijk's had, had an extraordinary half season, the, the, the first half of the season. Um, I've not seen a Liverpool central defender play like this for for thirty years. You know, going back to the days of um, Mark Lawrence and then Alan Hansen. Uh, he's he's absolutely magnificent. Um, he, he did something in the game against Wolves um, on the Friday before Christmas, where he he, he sort of gave Adama Traore a start and sort of sauntered alongside him and took the ball away. That was just absolutely <coughs> magnificent defending at its best. Um, he's 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 such a calm and presence. He's got he's got you can see the the way he plays 
everything's um, he makes everything happen at his own pace. The team have got such confidence in him as well, and um, if anything was to happen to him, I would think that they would be. You, you would see a, 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 um, an impact on the form, but um, you know Jurgen Klopp and, and everybody will be um, keeping the fingers crossed that he, he's there right until the until the bitter end. We were wondering if the squad was big enough to compete in both the Champions League and the Premier League. I mean, all those fears have been allayed somewhat over the uh, last few weeks. But, um, uh, you know, as the season progresses, if they continue to have uh, the lead they have in the Premier League at the moment, I mean, that that question kind of looks after itself. It's like, well, we we can because we have a lead in the Premier League. Yeah, um, and that's, you know, it's, it's important to stress that point. I think it, it is only a lead at the minute. There's There's... There's an awful long way to go, and I think people need to remember as well. About you know, there's, there's obviously huge excitement about this because it's it's a long, long time since Liverpool have been in a position where they've had a, as good a chance as this as winning the league. Um, but um, Manchester City, when they first won the title in 2012, they came back from eight points behind with eight games to go. So you know, they, they, there's there's a hell of a lot of lot of um, Work to be done, but in terms of the second half of the season, I really can't see the, the Champions League being too detrimental because if it's to go all the way to the final, it's only another seven games, which is effectively only the, the group stage, and that's spaced out over four months rather than than two and a bit. Um, so it shouldn't, it, and they've played the the bulk of the Premier League games now as well. So. I, I wouldn't have thought tiredness should, or, or fatigue or anything like that should come into it because Klopp's managed the, um, the squads quite skillfully and he's got lots of options now that um, will will give him um, will it, will, will give him the ability to freshen the team up um, and not impact on the or dilute the quality that he's, he's bringing in. So um, they will be able to attack both prizes, I think, and I'd, I'd, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to hear them start talking about you know fixture fatigue because I think I think they've they've, they've got through the hardest part in terms of um, of schedule and I really do. Yeah, it, it, it like when you look at City and you look at the um, the Guardiola teams over the years, they they tended to be brilliant front runners. But when in league campaigns in particular, when other teams got at them, stayed with them, and got a bit of a lead, then. They've got easily distracted uh, in the past. Certainly, his Barcelona team didn't win the league every year. Mourinho managed to uh, turn them over, um, despite the fact that they were clearly the, the superior force at the time. There's just a sense that sometimes that his teams are preoccupied with things other than just winning the game. Um, and I don't know. If, if this season has the bang of that. That actually, this could, yeah. this might not be a, a two-horse race if. if if Liverpool beat City and open up that lead, like it might just be Liverpool's to lose for the rest of the season. Yeah, it will. Uh, uh, ten points would be massive. Ten points really would be um, massive because that, that would mean Liverpool having to lose four games uh, and, and and City winning everything. Um, and I, I couldn't see that happening. I, um, if, I think Liverpool have only lost three since October 2017, so I, I, I can't see them losing four in four months. I might be wrong, but. But but let's see. But um, no, you're, you're right about um, Guardiola. He either wins the wins the league by a street. Uh, I was going through his um, his records with Barcelona and Bayern Munich, and the winning margins were either 
nine, ten, or nineteen points. They were all massive like wins. The only one that was was a bit different was um, I think it was two thousand and eleven. The Barcelona won by three points, um, and that was the only time he's like really been in a fight and come out on top. But um, he's going to be in a fight now. Make no mistake about it. And if if Liverpool um, were to go to the Etihad and win, and you know let, let's let's again stress this, that's that's no. No cut and dried thing because the city are going to throw absolutely everything at them and more. Um, but if they were to go there and win, then you know the, the, they couldn't wish to be in a better position. Dominic, great stuff. Thanks, William, for joining us, and happy New Year to you. And a happy New Year to you. See you soon. Dominic King there from the uh, Daily Mail, obviously on the Merseyside beat, covering Everton and Liverpool. The thing yeah. is, go on. The thing is, Liverpool could easily lose this title. And people are like, oh, they bottled it again. And they might well not bottle it. Like, it is highly dependent on the Manchester City resurgence, which you suspect is coming immediately. It, it was that blip that they had had, and it was down to the absence of Fernandinho. It was down to other factors as well. Like, first of all, getting pretty unlucky. Second of all, uh, I, I also want to make the point that it's kind of bizarre to say this, given the, the talent they have in that department. But a number nine in the guise of someone like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was just absent. Someone to just be in the right place at the right time, uh, like Pique Aguero, and e- eke out a result like that. But perhaps that's not what uh, Guardiola wants. Like he, he was, I wouldn't say he was grilled in the, the press conference after Leicester, but he was certainly questioned numerous times about his philosophy and if he would be uh, willing to change it, given the current predicament. And he was like, absolutely not. There's no question. There's no way we're, we're ever changing this. Yeah, he's right um, to. He's right he, not he, to. It's he's the, totally right in general. Whether or not the team is flaky, is there a flakiness in that team at the moment? Where does that come from? Because there seems to be a little bit. You're saying it's not bad luck, and um, like, is the 34 year old central midfielder really the only thing that's holding this together? Is that the little bit of sticky tape that? Keeps... Well, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more that that whole thing has been overblown. It, it was a large factor, and he has been brilliant this season. Like he was particularly good at against Manchester United a few weeks back. Like it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. There's more factors than that for sure. And you know, may, maybe like if you were going to tell me that there was going to be one team that was going to crumble during the Christmas period with the build-up of games, I wouldn't have said it was going to be Manchester City. We did talk about the flakiness before Christmas. We should come back and dig that out. Uh, right, we're going to talk rugby now, and we'll come back to the football in a couple of minutes' time. If you have any comments for us, though, you can just use the hashtag OTBAM on Twitter and we'll pick that up automatically or you can leave a comment under the stream. We stream this live on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Uh, Andy Dunn's going to join us in the studio right now but here's what uh, Johnny Sexton and Leo Cullen had to say after that tetchy Munster-Leinster clash. Have a look. Clips of the game but there's two instances with yourself and Joey Carberry during the game. One was probably a little bit of after as you threw him to the ground. Probably no issue there but there's another one we were in a ruck and it looked like you just kind of maybe there was a bit of a knee as you were getting up and Carberry kind of reacted to it. That's kind of getting shared a lot at the moment. Can you remember that at all, or um, the incident at the, at the time? No. The other one that was just kind of, as you said, there was this one at the sideline where I think Connor and James Lowe, James Klein got involved as well, but uh, or Jean Klein, but you threw him to the ground as well like that. Um, is that just kind of something that happens in a game, nothing to make a big deal out of, or can you remember if anything was said at the time? Yeah, nothing said, no. It's just something that happens in rugby matches. And, and then the last one for me on this one is just uh, you came off, Frawley came on for you and you kind of pointed to yourself like maybe you wanted to stay out there on the pitch but then there was ice on your calf afterwards was it more of a kind of an injury that you came off for to kind of wrestle I pointed to myself yeah just like I might have got coming off when Kieran came on yeah no no it was always plan it was more of an injury like I saw it like there was ice on Johnny's calf then afterwards so pointed at yourself like I might have got to come off no we planned to get we wanted to get here the exposure that game and that's why we made that change in 60 minutes 
Right, that was uh, that was interesting. So it was pre-planned. Andy, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So it was pre-planned for him to come off, and the <clears> ice <throat> in the calf was just incidental. Yeah, seems so. There you go. It was surprising because he um, he was actually beginning to find a little bit of form in the game itself. I think he, apart from the first two to three minutes where Leinster were excellent, um, they then became disjointed primarily. I think because. They lost their discipline and because Johnny had a go at Finneen Witcherly on that um, very borderline late tackle. But they didn't really find any flow in the game until about three to four minutes before Johnny was subbed off. So it was, I suppose, whether it was you know, pre-planned or not, given the scoreline, it, um, it was surprising. Yeah. There's no room for wiggle when you're chasing the game. You're like, oh, actually, you know, we want to win this game. <clears throat> we have our pre-plan. We've got to take them off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I was surprised. I mean, I, it, wiggle would be the word I'd use. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I would have wiggled it. I would have, uh, I certainly would have looked at the way the game had panned out and developed. But then again, if you've got, who knows, you know, if you've got maybe the Irish camp in one ear as well, I, you know, I don't know the details. I don't know whether Leinster are, are planning on, on Johnny obviously getting two full 80 minutes in the, in the two European games and they've probably a set amount of minutes that they ought to give him or want to give him in uh, Pro 14 matches but I would have wiggled yeah yeah. Um, let's talk about Munster's performance first <clears throat> they really needed this because the questions that they were asked in the aftermath of the cash game was would the team from a decade ago have allowed themselves to be bullied and gouged and kicked and not had a response physically in the match and I mean the answer apparently is uh, no, we, we can do that too mm. we're, we're, we're able to stand toe to toe with anybody yeah, they. Um, I, I think any aggression that that they showed in the Leinster game was uh, responsive to to Leinster. Leinster were the were the architects of their own downfall in my mind in terms of um, just being slightly overrated, slightly overly aggressive. I think they were keen to go down to to Thomond and uh, I suppose give the impression they're not been bullied um, but I think they over-egged it and as a result I think Munster's aggression um, came to the fore but I think it had to be dragged out of them a little bit in that first five minutes or so. Were you surprised that the game took on as much heat as it did? I, yeah I'm, <clears throat> I was surprised yeah I thought um, I thought Leinster lost their discipline I thought they lost their usual sense of control and uh, they weren't th- as I mentioned previously, the first two to three minutes, they had this kind of a seamless introduction to the game in terms of how they normally play and were very much in control. Um, and then uh, Johnny's incident with Finney and Witcherly seemed to uh, spark a response from his own team. He is the captain and he's the leader and he is aggressive by nature and, and generally that's a positive thing. But I think potentially some of the players, even the senior players like uh, Fardy making a really naive high tackle when the player was almost already in touch that type yeah. of stuff really doesn't uh, strike me as a team that were thinking clearly at that stage so um, whether they were they were as a group dynamic they were over egged going into the game perhaps too much in the changing room perhaps too much chat over Christmas I, I'm, I can only speculate but for sure looking at their typical 
style of play versus how they played in that first 40, minute, first 40 minutes against Munster and Thom, and um, it was out of character for that Leinster side. Yeah, I was just about to say, if you expected any team to perhaps go up to that level, you might have expected Munster, given what happens to them in cash as well, that there would have been some sort of response. It's a very uncurrent Leinster thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, um, uh, out of character, by, by that I mean the lack of discipline, and typically um, Leinster would, would be happy to concede or aiming to concede less than 10 penalties in an 80-minute game, and they conceded 10 in the first 37 minutes. Um, largely um, all very fair penalties, fair calls. The only thing, Frank Murphy, I, you know, he was under the spotlight. I thought he did really well in that first 40 minutes. The only thing he, he arguably missed was uh, Conor Murray's high tackle getting away, not being a yellow, having already carded Healy for a yellow card for a high tackle. So just a, a lack of consistency there. But given the pressure that was on Frank as a guy who played for Munster and had played with and against a number of the players on the field, I actually thought he did really, really well. I like the way he explains the decisions, especially in the conversations with the TMO. I don't think we hear that enough, as if, like, this is the reason why I'm asking you this particular question, like, which I don't think we get enough, particularly when it comes to Heineken Champions Cup uh, officiating. Yeah, he was very uh, communicative with his his uh, assistant referee and with si- uh, Simon Wilkinson, mm-hmm. the, the TMO, um, and I, I thought it was it gave good clarity. Um, there, there were one or two decisions, again, we probably go as far back as the November internationals, uh, you're looking at like Farrell's high tackle and not being penalised in November and it, it sparked uh, a controversial debate again. But as a general direction in terms of how the game is being refereed and, and um, changes in, in the approach to high tackles and no-arm tackles, I think the message is still being delivered fairly consistently. There were yellow cards, there was a red card for, for James Lowe's tackle. Um, there was a debate on whether Furlong's tackle or, or no arms clear out of the rook could have been red because shoulder made contact with the head. But I think he used, uh, I think Murphy used common sense. Um, well, it's probably better than that he used smart sense. It wasn't just common sense. Yeah. I mean... Um, was Lowe's definitely red? Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think this is, uh, the, the, the way you can probably def- try and defend Lowe is that he's running at full pace, but it's not really good enough defence because the responsibility is on Lowe to run at full pace but protect the guys in the air. And he knows that going into the game. It's been fairly clearly outlined as well. So if he uh, uses running full pace as an excuse, it's not good enough. He's, he's got to know that. Um, he did the bat lick off to his head, obviously, like a number of the other Leinster players. Yeah, and Furlong's definitely yellow. And I think Furlong's was definitely... Um, Yellow. You, by the letter of the law, you could argue it was a red because shoulder contact to the face should. But I think in this instance with Furlong, he was looking to clear out a rook at a reasonable pace. There was a Munster player behind his own Leinster player. And at the very last second, the Leinster player moved out of the way, at which point yeah. he, couldn't, he couldn't react. But I don't think he targeted anyone's face from a distance with his shoulder. He was looking to hit that rook, make contact with the face. And I, I think both... Uh, Stander, Sexton and Furlong, when that was explained to them very clearly by Murphy, were all accepting of the decision and, and happy with it. Yeah, OK. Uh, in terms of the quality of the performance from Munster, like, how much of this is something that you can build on? We saw patterns emerge. We saw them playing to a specific game plan. They'll be happy with stuff. Or is that there was a fight and they won the fight? No, I think uh, Munster were, were constructive. I think... Um, their line speed and defence was a plus for them um, under pressure in a, in a, in a, a tight game against the European and, and domestic champions. They were able to, to show that they have a, a very strong and aggressive line of defence and that's important under pressure. 
I think they were constructive in attack. They had the only line break of the first half off, off first phase play, a, a lovely uh, backline play off a line out. Uh, was it a bit accidental? Potentially accidental. Was it a bit? But, it looked uh, like it was supposed to go to Carberry and ends up yeah, onto Earls. Yeah, yeah, I think Carberry let it slide across his body and Earls ran through. I mean, there might um, be like, actually, looking at the video that going, can we do that again? Yeah. Can we yeah. try that again sometime? And I think Earls probably could have linked up with the men outside him as well. Um, he cut back inside. <coughs> um, I, I do think they may look, again, in terms of what they can build on there, you know, very regularly in the heat of battle in European competition, you're going to be playing against a team with 14 or 13 men, probably less so against 13. But yeah. at 13 men, uh, they'd have scrum in midfield and chose to kick to the corner. Yeah. Um, when Leinster would have had a back rower gone and James Lowe off the field and a midfield scrum, you're probably looking at attacking on either side, two defenders either side. You could stack what you like in terms of attack. I think that was an opportunity missed. However, they did get six points in that 10-minute period. So... You know, you're, you're probably splitting hairs to say they could have gone to the corner and got seven points. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they got six. The so. benefit of that would be, though, then that you have another front front row on the field again. Yeah. So, like, it, 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 it's exponential. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, a, a go, a, probably an average coming out of the last two seasons was teams tend to score 10 points in a Simbin period. Okay, right. Yeah. So, uh, six is fine, but, you yeah. know, ideally they, they could have scored more, yeah. And I certainly, they had a guilt-edged opportunity. They actually had two scrum opportunities that they didn't take um, against that 13-man Leinster. Set. They'd have had Michael Bent on the field for another six, yes. seven minutes to yeah. attack as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, is that just game management or is that... Yeah. yeah. I think it absolutely is game management and I think uh, O'Mahony not being on the field, Carberry... That's where Carby needs to really identify that, or Connor Murray, um, and they really need to kind of step on the Leinster throat at that stage. I think in the second half, um, again, in terms of what Munster can build on, they were constructive again, but they played a lot of rugby just working forward, forwards, kind of one-out runners off Connor Murray, and again against fourteen men as the game and the Leinster team, the game develops in Leinster tire. That's the time, I think, for Joey to step in as a first receiver more regularly and try and get the ball into midfield. And when you get that, that breaks the game up. It breaks up Leinster's defence. And with a man down, yeah. you have a better chance to uh, turn the screw. He, um, he's a proper Munster player now. You can see from the uh, delight when the first try goes in, it's like, yeah. yeah I yeah. now, lads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and rightly so. Yeah. He's got a, he, you've, got a, you've got to buy into the ethos. You've got to buy into the spirit of the camp that you're in and uh, the direction you're trying to go and you know he's uh, he's dead right he's, he's got to be aggressive and, and go seek out opportunities with Munster like he's done and um, I think he's doing it reasonably well I was delighted to see him place kick very well in that in those uh, in that month in that uh, Leinster game particularly on the back of uh, the Castor game he was he was Striking the ball very well in Castro, but striking it wide, Direction, yeah. and nobody cares about that. Yeah. But um, on a consistent basis, I think he's 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 striking the place ball better than he was. Um, and if you keep doing that, generally you get rewarded. And in that pressure situation against Leinster, it was nice to see he converted. Because mm. let's face it, that like that was the first proper time when Joey Carberry had some proper questions about him was after that cast game and of course they were all knee-jerk questions especially you look at the conditions as well that evening and he's sort of passed this setback first of all there's going to be more setbacks but he seems like the type of guy who when he gets a setback he's going to be able to deal with it in a fairly mature way Yeah, he, he needs to be fairly unflappable in that regard as a 10 and an international 10 and, and Johnny's immediate understudy he's got to show 
um, a resolve to that type of criticism. And if, if that Castro game is the worst criticism he ever gets as a 10, he's going to have a pretty well. successful career, yeah. Is so, so as understudy getting flung to the ground, is that uh, dynamic going to be effective? It, like, it, we, I, oh, I, I think, I think uh, as Johnny being asked about that, <laughs> I think that's fine, to be honest. I, look, he dragged the, that was off the field. There was a bit of a, a skirmish and Johnny dragged him out and uh, tried to get him out of the argument, I suppose. And, and uh, yeah, like, a bit of a power struggle there. Should we be happy that they're not going to see each other again before the World Cup months or next year? Well, unless there's some sort of Champions Cup uh, miracle draw, really. No, no, I want to see that again now, so right? Why? But yeah. like, really, just for the sake of, no. like, we've we put all our eggs in the basket of the World Cup next year at this point. You said the rivalry was dead, but with all the, the transfers happening between them, well, it's but, it's well and truly alive. The rivalry, I think, it was great that both sides, you know, it's fully stacked for the first time in a couple of seasons, probably in a domestic fixture. Yeah. Um, Texas first game in Tottenham Park in five years, six and a half years, and a half yeah. Years. And obviously, he's going down there as captain as well for the first time. So he was clearly. Uh, you know, highly motivated going into that. But, uh, yeah, it's, I actually think it's a pity. I think it would do the players good to get another game against each other at that, I suppose, at that intensity. Um, but doesn't, like you said, unless there's uh, a quirk of the kind of European draw. Well, so, are Munster back? Like, is, that, is this one performance enough for us to go, OK, they're absolutely, totally and utterly back and the worries that we had from on the back of the cast game, that wasn't the truth. The truth is now. No. Is I would say that's... I think that's overly simplistic. I mean, I suppose back to what is, you know, if they are back, what are they back to? The, the, if you're talking about the, the teams of old that, again, were, it was dragged up in, in post-Castro game, would they have lost those matches? Would they have found a way? And I think, to be honest, I think the older Munster team would have found a way to win in Castro. So is this team back to being like that? Uh, no, because I don't think they're going to be like that team. I think they need to be given space to be a different side. I think um, they have a little bit of identity crisis at the moment, I think, down there. I think they're a good side, they're very competitive, but they need to establish a clear style of play that works for the group that's currently there. And I think they're finding their way through that. Um, and in terms of their mental toughness and the resolve, I think that's building and, and the Leinster game will be of huge benefit. I think, um, so that's Scannell and Goggin at 12 and 13. Mm. And um, so maybe maybe Scannell is now a first choice mm. starter when everybody is fit. I'm not quite yeah. sure just yet, but yeah. um, I think that if you add Chris Farrell to the team, it changes things. Hugely. And yeah. I think it was also interesting to have Todd Blendell on the bench mm. because now they've depth. Like yeah. if, if Blendell is back to mm. fit and fingers crossed that he is, like... Yeah, you know. well, yeah. No, I think Chris Farrell make quite a difference to, well, certainly to the Munster squad. I actually think Farrell is going to, you know, come through and make a difference for the Irish squad come Six Nations potentially, and certainly by World Cup time. I think, I think Farrell's uh, gone under the radar recently because of the injury, but I, I think he's a superb player, and it was, it was notable. Munster ran a ball from from left to right off a scrum and I think Goggin passed it straight into touch off his left hand and, and I suppose in a very simple way I know, I know Goggin is better than that as a player but it's the type of thing that Farrell does with his eyes closed you know, in his sleep um, he attracts defenders simply by his size and by his, his aggressive running lines but to be able to make passes on the run like that as a distributor adds a dimension to Munster's game that they haven't had for a while yeah. I think if you add in the likes of Carberry Murray at nine, Carberry ten, Scannell as a, as a 
a very footballing type 12 with a nice left boot and a game management type of 12 that he is and a guy like Farrell outside I, I'd argue that's probably their their, their best combination yeah. um, with a, the likes of Blendal and Hanrahan who again has blown hot and cold but when he's hot he's hot um, they are developing depth I think I think nine probably Matheson coming in there has been a help but um, they're potentially a bit slim in certain areas relative to Leinster for example yeah like on that identity crisis that Munster may be going through, a lot of that probably has to be down to, I guess, a turbulent last 15 months uh, mm. down there as well with the change sure. of the coach, with uh, other instances as well. I felt like they were trying to, to get rid of water from the boat at, at certain stages. Like, is that part of it? Is, is it down to what you talked about there, that when they get the right players in the right positions, they just have a team that makes sense and it really is just down to personality? Or, or is it down to the coach? Like, what is the coach's desire for the team to have the identity? Yeah, well, I... I, I I tend to lean towards the coach down in Munster needs to really shape how they're going to play. And in an, in an ideal setting, the coach does that by getting the best out of the personnel he has. So it ought to change from squad to squad how you're going to play. I mean, for a coach to come in um, with the same script and 30 different players to who he coached five years ago doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think there's a small cultural shift going on in the sense that the traditional you know metrics for success then in Munster rugby were were a very strong forward pack and probably a, a tactically gifted 10 like O'Gara who played largely a good kicking game and a territorial game um, and that isn't uh, Joey Carberry's strength and they sought out Joey Carberry. So if they if they want to bring in Joey and try and put a square peg in a round hole and make him like Raj was, they're going to have trouble because it's not his strength. If they're going to bring him in and be critical that they don't have a you know a, an eight to ten man game like they used to have, it's a bit incongruous. Why would they go and seek out a guy like Carberry if they wanted? They could have gone and got a guy like Ross Byrne, for example, who'd have probably done that better. Yeah. So um, I'm sure that was in their thought process when they went and got him. Yeah, absolutely. So I think they've got to allow for that, and they've got to allow for the skills he'll bring, which are undoubted. And I think they have an opportunity to, to be a bit more courageous than they've been in the past in terms of how they play the game. Um, it's not being foolhardy, um, and there are going to be games like they had in Castro where it's rainy, wet and wintry, and putting the ball on the floor and in behind back three players is, is just, you know, that's a home truth you can't get away from. You've got to do that in certain European games. But as a general style, I think they have an opportunity with the personnel they have. Certainly if you look at their back row, uh, strength and depth, their 9, 10, 12, 13 first choices, and, and the likes of Earls out wide. Uh, and Haley now, who looks to be really strong, um, they have an opportunity to develop their game into a bit more of an expansive game as a, as a first port of call for them. Um, but it remains to be seen will there be afforded time to do that. Mm. Um, uh, Connacht played really well in the game against Leinster and just came up a little bit short, mm. and um, then played really well in the game after that and didn't come up short. It looks like there's the, the bones of a team who you could <coughs> see being a proper hiding cup team over the next couple of years there. Yeah, and I think, um, isn't it, the first three in, in each conference are getting automatic qualification for Europe, and I think they're gone, they dropped down into fourth, I think, as a result of the Christmas results. Is that right? I don't know. I can, I can yeah, check I think, uh, but either way, they're there or thereabouts for, for automatic qualification. Um, still third. Which is a, yeah, so, yeah, so it's a huge carrot for, for Connacht. Um, you know, 
we can't really underestimate when you look at what's happened with United and Mourinho and Solskjaer and obviously to with a slightly lesser focus globally on Connacht Rugby last year where they weren't a happy camp with Kieran Keane yeah. and just the change in management what it's done to invigorate or reinvigorate a lot of key players down there um, happy players generally are better players and guys who are given opportunities and feel positive going into work every day are generally guys who will perform better and I think Connacht have uh, have managed to change that and develop that from Kieran Keane's reign and I think it's showing yeah, and the value for um, for them for being consistently in the Heineken Cup would just be transformative, particularly when you're trying to put a new uh, ground together and just mm. remind everybody that this is a, a viable business and we actually have a fourth professional team that uh, not that not that is a question anymore, but that it had been a question for so long that like if they're not qualifying for the Heineken Cup every year as a matter of course, then they're nowhere near as useful to Irish rugby as they could be. Yeah, um, well, they've also generated a lot of goodwill and, and momentum and support down in, in Galway City. Like, when I was playing down in Connacht, you know, you'd do well to get a couple of thousand at a match, that yeah. was, albeit 10 years ago. Um, but now... What was that like? Probably, Did, was there a sense, like, <clears throat> that you weren't connected to the city? Well, no, it was just a sense that it wasn't... At the time, it felt rugby wasn't a priority down there. Um, and And... Very understandably so, but now I suppose you're looking at at a time when, when you know, Galway hurlers, but I suppose that's more the outskirts of the county in Galway as opposed yeah. to the city. It's just that the, the, the city identifies with a sporting team of success. Did you and live in Galway or would you have commuted back and forth? Oh, I lived in Galway, yeah. yeah. And I lived in East Galway, uh, East City of yeah. Ga- part of Galway in Roscam, yeah. Did people know you were a rugby player? No, no. Uh, people didn't know I was a rugby player in England or Leinster either. Yeah. So. <laughs> it didn't bother me at that stage. No, but it's just uh, interesting, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, there's yeah. Andy plays for he plays for Connacht. It's like, yeah, I don't know. think that would have been they the case. The the game, Not really. No, you could have stood beside yeah. anyone in O'Connell's having a pint, yeah. and they wouldn't have known the difference. But the modern day Connacht player um, probably can't do that, or if they can, they're recognised. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is it. I mean, that's the yeah, no, that's a huge positive. The, yeah. the transformation yeah. of the whole thing. Absolutely. And where Ulster at the moment? What's the yeah, I, th- I think Ulster, um, I suppose, to, to counter-argue where we are with, with Munster, for example, and, and that, I suppose, trying to find an identity and style with which they're, they play, I think Ulster have, have carved out a very clear uh, identity in terms of what they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to play. They, they've embraced risk. They play a, a lot of offloads. They've got a few of them wrong. Um, they've shipped a few bad results as a result, but they're improving. And I think it's very much a model that Dan McFarland's brought over from his experience with Townsend uh, in Glasgow and yeah. then in Scotland. Um, and I think it's quite progressive. I think it's very positive for Irish rugby. And I think Ulster rugby, I suppose, is walking to a whole different beat and rhythm compared to last year, which wouldn't be hard. Yeah. So. In a weird way, it's kind of like the flip side of Munster almost. I know you made the comparison there, but in terms of the areas of the pitch they needed to focus on, because mm. Munster traditionally quite strong up front, and then you're saying that it's the identity of the backs they need to work on, whereas Ulster last season in particular were just getting destroyed up front all the mm. time, and they're potentially world-class backs in a lot of positions last year in particular, like with the likes of Leila Ifano, just weren't getting the opportunities mm. because they were getting killed. Are you looking at a scrum this year that is far better in the long run, that is holding its own and can go toe-to-toe with the best in Europe? Yeah, I think the most instructive thing I heard or, or read about the, the Ulster forward pack 
in recent history was Rory Best's comment, com- comments coming back from the Six Nations where he said it just felt very, very different. I mean, it was a very pointed and marked probably criticism of his teammates and he is the captain and it's his right to do that. But he said previously going away to Irish camp in November, when I came back, it felt like the guys had been on a bit of a holiday. When he, right. went, when he, when he went into a set scrum and a training scrum, Having come back from a Joe Schmidt camp, he said it was a notable drop in intensity and concentration levels. This Pretty time, good he, coaches as well. Yeah, uh, but this time he came back from the November internationals and he said they were right at the pitch and level that he expected and wanted from them. So there's probably no better indication from your hooker in the middle of the front row and captain to 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 demonstrate change that is happening up there, positive change. Um, and again, being coached by a guy like Dan, who is a self-confessed scrum nerd and you know if there's going to be a strength in his coaching armory it's got to be the scrum he played there probably for you know 10 15 seasons as a professional coached as a as a scrum specialist before he developed into assistant coach roles and head, and his first head coach role now so um absolutely that's a a positive aspect of Ulster's development yeah Okay, a couple of quick comments for you here. Uh, Connacht destroying Ulster was a fantastic highlight, says Darrow Tool, hashtag OTBAM. Uh, Niall G, the bite is back, question mark. The bite was never gone. I'm sure if you ask any Leinster or Munster player, they would tell you that. Um, well, let's just wait and see what happens in the uh, coming years. Um, Dean Purcell says, I think the game has almost saved the rivalry if Leinster ran away with it or even won by a score or two. It would have been another nail in the coffin of the fixture. The Aviva should be rammed next year. I, assuming they pick their full teams. Like yes, yeah. Um, and it, that, it was quite circumstantial, I think, that they picked the full teams this year. I don't think they just, um, on, a, on a whim, decided they're both going to pick full sides. Yeah. It's just as the season has panned out, as the, the conference league tab- table develops, as the, the demands of the Irish management and the way things are set up, it just happened to be good timing. And they both went full sides, uh, apart from Omani, obviously, in the couple of Leinster injuries. But... Um, it would be great, seeing as they don't play each other that regularly, to see two fully stacked sides, but I don't think it's going to be that regular in occurrence. Uh, Morris Reardon has an interesting question here. Yeah. Why do you guys think it's so difficult for opposition teams to stay within the rules of the game when playing against Munster? The Cast game and the Leinster game being prime examples of this. Is it something that's happening in reaction to the way Munster play, both dominated around the Rook area and perhaps frustration that that carried over? I mean, that is a bit of victim-blaming there by Morris, but, uh, you know. Your tone yeah. would suggest you agree with it, Ger. It's an interesting question. Well, I suppose he's, you know, the, the likes of Ty Byrne, for example, who's so strong um, over the tackler and, and is a guy that's very hard to shift. Fellas might be a bit more aggressive in terms of how they enter the rook to clear the likes of Ty Byrne, but I don't think as a general rule, um, monstrous style of play is, is, you know, predicating bad behaviour from everybody else. What does Sideburn have to do now to, to get in the Ireland team? Does he have to kill somebody? Because like, yeah, not a lot. I would have thought he's he's damn close. He's um, it's just strength and depth in in terms of that position, though. I mean, Toner was outstanding in the New Zealand game. Ryan has been outstanding in almost every professional game he's played. Yeah, um, even in defeat, he was pretty good. Yeah, and it's uh, you know he's got that thing where it's very hard to argue. Byrne gets in ahead of either of them on top form, but he's damn close and. Um, you know that's it's pretty tough for Ty Byrne because in recent ten to fifteen years, you know we've had O'Connell, we've had O'Callaghan, we've had Mal O'Kelly, and there's, it's been a position we've been strong in. But I would have thought at other points in history he'd have been a shoe in to start in an Irish team based on his current form. 
yeah. just happens to be behind Ryan and Toner at the moment. Ryan has this thing where, um, you know those old assault courses where uh, you would go under the net, where yes. you can kind of just do that, uh, like even though he's, you know, a thousand foot tall and yeah. everybody's trying to tackle him, he can just crawl along the ground. Like, yeah. Like, I'm not sure if you see Brian O'Driscoll's tweet the other day. His question was, can James Ryan carry like he does for 10 or 12 years? I'm not sure. The punishment he takes, his ability to make two or three yards when he has no right to, is unrivaled. Well, with maybe the exception of CJ, he says. Well, I, I think there's a, there's a slight contradiction in, in that, in terms of Brian's tweet, in that can he, can he carry like that for 10 to 12 years? He's not taking a lot of punishment because of the way he carries. If he carried differently, he'd keep running into people. That's what all the other players do. He avoids contact better than anyone. So by that rationale, he's not taking as much punishment. If he was just running directly into the smash, the traffic, like most of his peers, he'd take a lot more punishment. So I actually think it's, it will elongate his career the way he plays to avoid contact. He, like you said, the assault course, the capacity to drop his height from six foot six to one foot six uh, is, is remarkable. Um, but also I think there's a lot in terms of his game intelligence, his anticipation of lines to run, to attack space, his, his uh, almost telepathic relationship at times with either Conor Murray or Luke McGrath in terms of they seem to pick him out off the side of a rook where they can't pick anyone else out in space. So he's, there's a lot to his game that goes, uh, I suppose, underappreciated as well. But I'd actually disagree with Brian to a degree on that. It'll be hard for him to carry and play at that level for 10 to 12 years, but I don't think... It's, uh, I don't think it's relentlessly physical on his body to avoid contact. Sure. Did Luke McGrath do enough in that game to be number two? Um, well, probably, probably not, um, but neither are any of the other number twos. Um, I, I can't quite fathom why all Irish scrum halves are box kicking five metres ahead of themselves in our own 22. That includes Conor Murray, Luke McGrath, Kieran Marmion. I don't know why we're doing that when we've got a lot of 10s who could stand in the pocket and drill at 60 metres. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's nonsensical. It's a strategy and, and tactic that's been used for about 18 months relentlessly in Irish rugby. Yeah. I don't get it. Is it a direction from on high? <laughs> well, it, if it was, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean... At best, you're 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 get a fifty-fifty chance to recover the ball with with wingers chasing it. If you lose the ball, the opposition have it five meters further down the field. Yeah, I don't get it. You give it to your ten, kick it sixty meters, give up the fifty-fifty battle for possession, and trust your defense fifty meters down the field. So you remove the risk that one of your players might get sent off. Yes, yeah, that's a, an added fringe benefit of that. Let's uh, a quick look at the fixtures coming up um, this weekend on uh, Airsport Connacht against Ulster. Um, that's obviously done it's the bottom three here yeah, yeah. so um, Leinster Ulster the fifth today's the second so I guess that makes that Saturday, Saturday. it says it there as well there you go there you go that was helpful yeah <laughs> <laughs> glasses happy new year to everybody uh, the other game on Saturday is Connacht against Munster kicking off at 7.35 so 5.15 kick off for Leinster against Ulster on Airsport 1 uh, followed by Connacht against Munster also on Airsport 1 this week uh, this weekend um, Andy good stuff happy new year to you Happy New Year, Jer. Um, so we're going to win the World Cup this year. That's how this conversation finishes. That's how every conversation should finish up until... <laughs> we've, we've the best chance we've ever had. I mean, yeah. But yeah, definitely. But um, I, my, my concern is the amount of rooks we, we take to win a game. That's my only concern. Is we it we just average a about 140 relative to the other... Our, our, our peer kind of top four or five teams in the world are averaging about 80 rooks to win an oh, international. Right. So... Um, that's the, count, the counter-argument, I mean, we've about 55, 60 more rooks than our, 
our surrounding competition to win a game, um, which is you know a pretty high amount of workload extra to, to back to back do that six times in a row, seven times in a row to win a World Cup is going to be hard. But the counter argument is we're very good at it. Um, we're very good at maintaining possession and we've got strength and depth probably three deep in most positions which could sustain playing that way. Yeah, so, so it's like it's very feasible. Operation Human the, Shield is the first team yes, that goes out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Andy, good stuff. Thanks very much. Uh, so Gary Breen was at Arsenal against Fulham for Premier League Live. He discussed Arsenal's mentality and the challenge that Unai Emery faces to turn the club around. Have a look. Well, if you were asking me what would my scenario have been as a player, then I would be thinking, listen, I need to just play as hard as I can, blah, blah, blah. But if you're asking me to to comment on what these Arsenal players, I expect exactly what you just said. They're looking over their shoulder because they've had it so easy for so long here. And this is not to suggest they're not good players. Yes, they are. But they're the most self-rewarding group of players you've ever seen in your life in terms of they win one game, selfies, this, they think they're the big I am, and they get put back in their place. I think... Emery will be looking to strengthen and whether or not he can get those type of plays in January remains to be seen because the quality ones are not often available. But having said that, I don't think Arsenal will have millions to spend, but there's no doubt that this work in progress desperately needs a couple of transfer windows to fix the problems that they have here. Yeah, I don't know. It feels like he knows that, though, at least, and is trying to do it, which would be a significant change from the Wenger era, right? Yeah, it would. It's, be, it's been uh, a despondent couple of days for us, big Emery faithful over over the last couple of weeks. But then they bounced back, no? Well, well, they did, but it's still the lingering thing of like it was so Wenger losing to Liverpool in that fashion. It's Christmas. Stuff happens at Christmas. Stuff, stuff happens at Christmas. You'd be grand, Darren. How are you? Stuff happens at Christmas. The theme of the day. Roger, <laughs> how are you? Yeah, good. Did a lot of stuff happen to you at Christmas? Hold on. It was quiet your, mic, your mic is muted there. So oh. We're having a great. Uh, you know, this is this is why we come back to work when you aren't back at work, so that we can make these mistakes and um, and you know I can't read the day of the week. Oh, it's troubleshooting. Yeah. Has the troubleshooting yeah, worked? It has, yeah, it has. Yeah. There I we go. It. Darren, how are you? Uh, try that again. Take two of live television. We'll fix that in post. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very well. Uh, good Christmas. Quiet. The Christmas word of the day. I think everyone will say uh, quiet when asked how their Christmas was. Yeah. Which what would be the lie. point of getting into detail? <laughs> that would be a lie. Let me tell you about all of the family fights we had about <laughs> insignificant stuff. And no, quiet is the best way to answer. Yeah. Quiet and sports felt. And we will hear from Owen's hero, Unai Emery, in a moment. It was a happy new year, though, for Spurs fans. They started 2019 with a win. Mauricio Pochettino's men are up to second in the Premier League table after beating Cardiff by three goals to nail Pochettino, pleased by the fact that they managed to bounce back quickly from their recent shock defeat to Wolves. I'm so happy. I think uh, very pleased uh, with the performance. I think we started the game so well. We were so clinical from the beginning. After 20 minutes, 3-0, I think it was a fantastic result for us. Three points that uh, make us, us to believe a little bit more in our possibility to be in a very good position on the table. I don't know who had the line, but um, Spurs had a title challenge that lasted shorter than the Christmas ham. <laughs> it's like... A Spursy title challenge. It was very Spursy. So harsh. Well, if you listen to Graham Sunes yesterday, this uh, title challenge is absolutely not done. He says that uh, they're very much still in the mix, and uh, when Graham Sunes speaks, I tend to listen. And I'm starting to. Okay, there's no question they've got nowhere near the depth that Liverpool and Manchester City have, which ultimately is what is going to lose you a title challenge. If they get injuries in certain positions, they're screwed, and we've seen it before. Or if their best player so far this season has to go and represent his country uh, for the next couple of weeks, which isn't ideal either. But when you look at it in the face of it, like if you look at sort of their world class talent versus the rest of the world class talent up near the top of the table, 
pretty good. It's not a hell of a lot behind. No. So it, they would need to get remarkably lucky when it comes to injuries, suspensions, etc., etc., and need to come back from the, the son return with a 100% record. And then we could potentially make an argument that the title race is on. But yeah. last season and the season before, it actually kind of felt like the team that finished second, they didn't really feel like runners-up because no. it wasn't really a race. So it could be a case of they might finish second but never really be... Yeah, they rose to second position yeah. from like March, April onwards. In, Would never in, really be in the hunt. Yeah, like it was, it was the, the lesser season they finished yeah. second, right? Um, and like I, I think definitely at this position that we've been speaking about Spurs in a much more serious manner. And it does kind of leave open the question to, to Maurizio Pochettino's future when he's looking around us. And I'm not just talking about Manchester United, potentially at, at Real Madrid. Of course, the Madrid job is a vastly different one to the situation he might be in at United. So. I'm not sure. There is kind of a sense here that they, this thing, this idea that Spurs are onto something used to be such a patronising tone about to Spurs fans, I'd imagine. Whereas now it's like, no, they really are onto something. They are close to yeah, launching a real title challenge. Just about to screw it all up. Yeah. Has he done a better job than Mourinho did at United during a spell there? Who? Pochettino at Spurs. Oh, way better, yeah. Than Mourinho at United? Yeah. I mean, if you were talking earlier about the currency of, of not winning anything. If you were to look at the currency of trophies and that being the only measure of success or the only measure of success that matters in modern football, would, is there an argument to be made that... Mourinho did a better job. That, that is a hot take. That is, that is a hot take starting off 29. I would have thought there would have been no question about that, that uh, Pochettino has certainly been a far more successful Premier League manager than on the metrics, United. On the metrics of... Success. Yeah, overachieving. O'Neill's uh, interview, Martin O'Neill did an interview with Luke Edwards just before Christmas, really interesting, where he tried to bring a bit of perspective to what Mourinho did at United by saying people decide that the the trophies he won didn't matter because he didn't win the Premier League. But at the same time, this is a guy who has won more trophies than most of the other managers in the league, except for the one that won the Premier League, Pep Guardiola, in the last year. Um, Yeah, he... Like, if you look at the relative positions that both managers took over from, like, Mourinho hasn't vastly improved the team from Van Gaal, who won a, a cup, right? Not the um, Europa League, but, like, uh, what Pochettino has done is restore Spurs to a level where they're credible. We're talking about them having a credible title challenge, which they haven't been a proper title challenge team it's the 60s? Really? It's the last time they won it. Like, I mean, there was a season Clive Allen scored 45 league goals and I don't think they were credible title challengers. Like when they won the Cup in, in the 90s. Like, they, was that a league challenging team? No, I mean, Not did really. they challenge for the league really under Harry? They didn't. They barely scraped into fourth one year. So, like, I mean, that's a remarkable job. He's also managed to convince some of the best footballers in England to play for less money than they should. That's insane. But now he's got to walk the walk and say, I'm going to manage at this club for less money than I could get. At well, I mean, I'm, going to take the, I'm going to take the same money that you were going to give to everybody else, and because mine's the one that's, you know... And, and my rising tide will lift all boats. So where are you on the overall argument of... Pochettino he, slams Jose Mourinho yeah, in a celebrity death match, he, rips his head off and goes... Do you need the medals to prove it? No, I don't need the medals to prove it. I, I need the, the mere process of management and... So far, Solskjaer looks like he can uh, get, the be- get the best out of Paul Pogba and uh, Marcus Rash- Rashford and Anthony Martial and potentially the I big do, one, the big I one is up next, Alexis Sanchez. It's, I, yeah, it's I mean, a tricky that, second album be, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer right now. That would now. be amazing. I do feel like we're in the, the Stan 3-0 win over Sweden. There's like a... Oh, honeymoon period for sure. There's no question about that. So let's let's see what happens. 
I saw a really funny, um, I don't know, a meme or just a funny Man United fans observation or Liverpool fans observation of what a job Ole's done. You know, when he started, they were in sixth, 19 points behind Liverpool, three wins on the trot and they're sixth and 19 points behind <laughs> Liverpool. Completely <laughs> remarkable. Leicester go back to winning ways with a 1-0 victory at Everton. Arsenal beat Fulham by four goals to one. That victory followed the 5-1 humbling at the hands of Liverpool. Manager Unai Emery feels they're still lacking defensively and he wants to get a defender in the transfer window. We considered some chances from then. We, we want to continue defensively, being more consistently. But at the moment, in the balance, because we are scoring a lot, but the balance is, 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 is not enough at the moment because defensively we need better balance. The club is, is watching each, uh, each uh, possibility if, if uh, we have one opportunity with uh, one uh, different player uh, and can come and help us, uh, we are going to watch, but it's not easy. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer looks to maintain his 100% record as the Manchester United interim manager this evening. They travelled to Newcastle. Burnley manager Sean Dyche hopeful that Robbie Brady could be fit for their trip to Huddersfield. Elsewhere, Chelsea take on Southampton. Bournemouth entertain Watford. Brighton make the trip to West Ham and Wolves play Crystal Palace. Leeds remain too clear at the top of the championship table this morning despite losing last night former Republic of Ireland striker Daryl Murphy the hero he got a goal and set up the winner for Nottingham Forest they beat Leeds by four goals to two Norwich closed the gap with a 1-1 draw at Brentford their second now on 49 points Ireland striker David McGoldrick scored to help Sheffield United win 3-0 at Wigan that moves them up to third place Bristol City won 2-0 at Stoke Republic of Ireland midfielder Callum O'Dowda netted in that game well, in rugby, Sean Cronin admits things probably got out of hand against Munster. The Ireland hooker was a spectator for the fiery Interpro derby, but admits his teammates were bitterly disappointed with how they handled the occasion and acquitted themselves. He's quoted in the Irish Times saying, Our discipline wasn't good enough. We played nearly 60 minutes down a man and we had another man gone as well. We're never going to win games away from home against quality opposition like Munster with a penalty count of well over 10. He also noted that it was probably just sloppiness and not any malice that led to some of the indiscipline scenes we saw, those sentiments echoed by Johnny Sexton in the aftermath of that game. Having those, that clear thought process in like a red-hot environment here, you know, it's a, it's a very special place to play and you can either rise to the challenge or you can, you know, walk out the gate. Like, you know, some teams come here and get beaten and no one's up and we, we didn't do that and I'm proud of the lads for how we stuck in there. But, uh, you know, you can't blame any one person for... Uh, you know, the, the, the cards because, like I explained before, you know, no one went out to high tackle someone or no one went out to, to take someone out in the air. It's just, you know, us we need to be better in, in those in this environment where you don't do those, uh, do those things. Now, Michael Van Gerwen is celebrating this morning after claiming his third PDC World Darts Championship title. The world number one beat Michael Smith 7-3 in the final at London's Alexandra Palace last night. The Dutchman raced into a 4-0 lead before Smith took five successive legs to make it 4-2. Victory, though, takes Van Gerwen to second in the list of PDC World Championship title wins. He is way off the record of 14, though, set by Phil Taylor. In golf, Rory McIlroy says loyalty to the European Tour will not be a factor when he decides what tournaments he'll be playing in this year. The four-time major winner won't play in Europe until at least the summer and says his priority will be ranking points and prize money in 2019. He's quoted as saying, A lot of guys have this sort of loyalty to the European Tour which is great, but it's not as if we all get handed starts. We've got to qualify to get on. My life is here. I live in the States. My wife is American. Everything is moving this way in the world. It just makes sense. 
The UFC president Dana White has teased a rematch between Conor McGregor and Khabib Nurmagomedov to take place in 2019. The Russian beat the Dubliner via submission in their lightweight title fight last October. A brawl, though, after the bout led to suspensions for both fighters. White says the promotion are eager to arrange a rematch, but must first wait until the fighters are cleared by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. I think a lot of people want to see that fight. Um, we got to see how this thing, obviously, again... We still haven't gone before the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Yeah. That's got to happen. And when that does, we can figure out how this whole thing plays out. Is Max moving to 55? Um, Tony Ferguson, obviously, in the mix. Yeah. So we got to see yeah, how this yeah. plays out. Just on that, right, before you... So we'll get to the breaking news in a minute. Nobody wants to see this fight again, do they? Oh, yeah. Do you? Absolutely. What? It's going to be another one-sided... McGregor can't... It's not even a fight. It's money. But it, you, I mean, like it will dwarf the record set at the last pay per view. Like UFC fans would probably want to see Max Holloway involved or maybe Tony Ferguson, but the generic fight fan, the Conor McGregor fans, the generic public would prefer to see McGregor and Nurmagomedov Madoff again. Darren's right in terms of the general populace. But would they not rather see like Nate Diaz or you know? But like that's exactly that, that's exactly that, yeah. that, 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 be a trilogy decider. I can understand that. Like at least it's a bit closer, and, but like that, that's the, that's the correct combat sports decision. The correct entertainment decision and business decision is probably to put them up. up but he lose again, then then it's like well. He, oh, it's not a it's not a correct decision a, for McGregor either. It's no. been a long time since. I, I think from Dana, Dana White wants this to happen to re- remove the power of McGregor to reduce it further. But what if he doesn't lose? True again? as well. Like the the fight uh, the fight uh, the last fight went the way most. That's people. like what if we win the Euros and we have to keep Mick McCarthy. There's more chance of Conor McGregor winning than we us winning the Euros. But the last fight, it was down to the fact that if it went any kind of distance, the longer it went on, the more chance Nurmagomedov had of winning it. But Conor McGregor changed like the UFC with a punch. He was one of the most powerful hitters and strikers in the game. He had an ability to to end fights in a way that was 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 game changing, not just for him but for that entire company. So, the idea that it would be of no interest not just to the general public, but to fight fans. It's crazy. I think even fight fans would like to see McGregor and Nurmagomedov go again to see if Conor can actually do that thing where he can shock the world with one punch. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is a, a, a knockout thing, though, that you'd be looking for, which, again, I'd say there's about as much chance of that happening as there is of Ireland winning the Euros. But anyway... Uh, there is some breaking football news. Yeah, Darren's going to bring us the rest of the GA in just a moment, but uh, Christian Pulisic's move to Chelsea has been confirmed for £58 million this morning. He's going to stay with Borussia Dortmund until the end of the season. And he's only he's, 20. I didn't realise that. Yeah. Uh, like Obviously, he was brilliant last season. He hasn't really lived up to the first season hype. He's American, which obviously makes his uh, profile... It enhances his profile to a certain extent, to, to the extent that he's actually their next Freddie Adu. He is... The single biggest thing that American soccer fans are hanging their friends. Well, Freddie Adu never made it. Never made it. Well, true. Okay, okay. Christian but Pulisic he, has already had a better career than Freddie. Yeah, yeah miles better. Yeah. Um, the the thing he's is, an American that wants to play in Europe, not yeah, like McElroy. It's very true. Like this, is, it's an interesting kind of a whole political element to this in terms of Chelsea. Daniel Story, um, a football writer, just saw his tweets this morning, which kind of give give food for thought. So Chelsea are signing twenty year old Christian Pulisic for sixty four million euro, which may force the eighteen year old Callum Hudson Odoi to seek a move for twenty five million pounds. Both are extremely highly rated, but you do wonder if the two players were switched around, whether exactly the same would happen. And I, I really would, it would be a great experiment to take all the promising kids from the academies, put them into the Bundesliga, into the Premier League, into La Liga, into Serie A, and into Ligue 1, and see who makes it where. See how, how 
restrictive the Premier League is to a youngster's uh, progress, particularly with one of the top six clubs. I think, I think there's a valid point in that. Yeah, it's a fair point. I think a lot of the thing about development is that uh, the most meaningful way to develop young players is to have them actually playing for points. It's why most of the academy system seems to be flawed in that they're playing in these reserve leagues that don't really matter. I think it's better for a player's development if they go off somewhere and yeah. play maybe even lower leagues, well, if you look play at Tam- in ma- matches that matter. Tammy Abraham has been absolutely amazing for Villa. Just uh, like every time you look up, sometimes he's missing, but uh, generally he's like scoring two goals a game at the moment. And instead of playing reserve matches at- for Chelsea, yeah. yeah. So like he's got a clause in his contract apparently that he can break the, the loan deal with Villa and join a Premier League team. Um, so he'll probably get a move to the Premier League now and then get a move to. Somewhere else. Now, I don't know if they're always automatically going to be any good. Has, has Ian Acho been any good since he left City? Not really. Like, like the, the thing is, he is... I was surprised he left City because he did really, really well for half a season. Yeah, like... Like, he, he was scoring when he was playing. He is also behind Jamie Vardy in a system that really only rewards one striker. And, and he's only 22. Um, check his, his age there as well. And Tommy Abram's 21. So, like, you know, there's definitely different ways to do this. But you see the benefit of getting games, like... No, no question about it. I, I'll be very, I, I'll be, I'll be mildly surprised if Christian Pulisic has a massive season for Chelsea next year. Of course, there has to be patience with a player of his age. But well, he's the long-term replacement for Eden Hazard, isn't he? Well, that's the thing. You hope it? to get a season with Hazard, showing Pulisic this is what you're supposed to be doing, and then he joins Real Madrid, and then you already have your player, and you've only spent sixty million on him instead of spending one hundred and twenty million on him. But you can then sell him to, a, you know, plus Chelsea becoming a selling club. Then all of that sweet, 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 sweet marketing money that you get from the states, mm. and it's a great way of like actually maturing a player. Like you mentioned, Tommy Abram there, and the actual fact that if he goes and plays matches that matter, and he's not just with eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-old lads playing reserve matches. That yeah, the points are important, but at the same time, they don't matter in the, the context of what a championship ma- match means. And you're learning from older pros, and you're maturing in a way that you just won't get at the academy system. I think there's a lot to be said for playing those senior matches and playing a- alongside guys you can learn from instead of being in an echo chamber with kids your own age, where it's very hard to mature if you're surrounded by people who are young, naive, and and still not maturing in the way they could be if they were in an environment with older people. And there's no doubt that somewhere along the way Chelsea have a buyback clause at like a very reasonable rate. If they, you know, if say they sell Tommy Abram to somebody else, they'll be able to buy him back at some point. Now finally Gaelic Games, the new rules for Gaelic football making headlines once again today after being labelled crazy by the Mayo football manager James Horan. He's preparing to take charge for the first game of his second stint. They opened their FBD League campaign this Sunday, that's against Leitrim. He's expressed concerns about the new rules and feels referees are the real losers. Let's let's see how they are. I, look, I would I wouldn't be a fan of them. I think they're I, th- I think they're a little bit crazy to be honest. And and I don't know what we're trying to do to referees, um, how they're going to be refereed. I I, I just don't know. You know, um, you know you, you've seen it in, in quite a lot of the games already where, where they've been used. They're going to be a struggle. So I'm not sure what's going to be brought in for the national league. So we just have to wait and see. But we have to play with what's there. So we've done a little bit of work on it and and, and make sure the players understand it. And uh, look, we'll we'll play whatever's happening. This is uh, something we've been speaking about, obviously, for the past couple of months. But with every bigger profile of manager that comes along and says something about it, it suddenly becomes a much bigger story. And like, I, I don't know, it's you do have to feel a lot of sympathy for GA managers in terms of the situation that they're in. That of course there is this long-term gain, and you do need a bit of short-term pain sometimes to achieve that goal. And that might be the sort of situation that we're in now, where we've got uncertainty around the rules. But ultimately. 
James Horn doesn't care about long-term game. He cares about preparing as best he possibly can for the 2019 league. Mayo don't have time to wait. They don't have time to be uh, a passenger on this bus of rules going who knows where. And uh, there was a weird metaphor. But j- oh, it's j- a great metaphor. It's like speed. It's it's going out of control and it's hope that somehow it will stop. But no one knows how to stop it. Uh, where nobody knows where the hell it's going yeah. and, and nobody knows when it's going to end. And uh, it might end before the league. It might end after the league. Who knows? Either way, Mayo have a big league coming up this year. Like they almost got relegated last year. And like I get the whole idea that sometimes we just need to take it on the chin for a little while. But I'm sure Mayo fans are like, no, we can't be part of this guinea pig experiment. But if you really want to try and make some change that's meaningful and at the same time not hugely disruptive to the game as a whole, why not look at bringing in a second referee? Why not have two people to try and enforce the rules that we have or try and enforce the... At inter-county level only? If, you wouldn't be able to do it at any other level other than inter-county. And that's the whole... That's the whole got to have the same rules. But you can't change the entire game of football because Although the, that's box, the, the, like, the championship's been boring for two or three years. Like, that's, why they're, that's why they're doing it. But like, instead of addressing... I mean, it's terrible that we keep talking about this crap instead of going, the system is flawed, fix the system, and then come back to us with the rules. Pit teams who are of equal standard up against each other and let them work out a style of play. And if you're progressive, you're going to win. If you're not progressive, you'll, you'll get found out and, and your uh, county will replace you as the manager and the playing club style will change. It's really easy. It's really easy. I know the rules are, are, are for trial and then it will be seen if they work. It will be Then they will come forth to meaningful change around the game. But it's absolutely bonkers that to fix the senior inter-county game or try to address some of the issues that have made the senior inter-county game a less interesting spectacle, that you would change the game of football for everyone that kicks the ball in the country. That's Instead of just changing the... Like, the, the GA will tell you they can't change it because they are bound uh, senselessly to rules that they write and control. It's like the porky queasing all over. Well, our rules which we write and we police say we can't do it. Well, then change the rules. See, uh, Kevin Walsh was also out talking about this over the last 24 hours or so and saying the, the old chestnut that there's a couple of pundits that uh, control the narrative. I actually don't understand why people who refer to a couple of pundits don't just don't say Bradley Spillane and Colm O'Rourke. Yeah. Like, we all know who you're talking about. Just say the name. And, like, yeah, you, you do wonder if... Like, we often refer to the GEA as quite a, a stubborn organisation, but the, a stubborn organisation couldn't be that impressionable to three men, surely? Or could they? I don't know. I'm, just, I'm, leaving, that, I'm leaving that one out there. But they have I, a, I don't know the correct answer to that question. If they want to fix the product, their marquee product, which is the, the senior football and inter-county hurling championships, obviously you don't need to do anything with hurling because it's been the most spectacular hurling season on memory. But if you want to change the football, absolutely, no issue with changing it. But to do so in such a panicky way of, shit, what do we do? Let's just do this and this and this and this and this. And we've got five new rules where two of them you can kind of get on board and say, yeah, look, that will actually increase it as an attacking spectacle, limit the amount of hand passes. And when, when are these rule changes the happening? At, what's the window we're going to see? Are we going to see any championship matches with them? Oh, no, wait, hang on a second. We'll do the preseason. We'll definitely do the league as well. Oh, you can't do the league, so the players are like, okay, we won't do the league. Maybe well, we'll do the league. Maybe we're not we'll sure. We, we might do the league. And now the managers don't know. And the managers are like, what? What rules are we playing this goddamn league under? That's a bit insane. It is. It's nuts. The calendar year. We're going for the whole calendar year. That's it. Done deal. Decision made. This year's championship might have an asterisk after it. Maybe that's going to stop the five in a row. Who knows? But at least we're all planning for the whole thing. I heard a story there last week that one county had sought a, a referee's briefing to, to have a referee's briefing to try and, when they do resume training, have some idea of what's happening. So get a referee to come down to training and 
briefed them on what's happening, but they couldn't facilitate a briefing from the referees because referees hadn't been briefed yet. Yeah. Nobody's been briefed yet. We're just laughable. Some, um, some comments about the coleman Doherty, uh, which is the new debate in our sport. I mean, we'll, we'll change that pretty quickly, but don't worry. Uh, Christy coleman Doherty is Carr, Finnan, Kelly, Mark II. McCarthy either played Finnan left back or on the right side of midfield. I suspect he'll do the same with Doherty, says uh, Brian McDonald. How are you doing, Brian? Uh, James Gale says, why not do what was done with Irwin and move one to left back? I mean, not the worst idea. No. Let's see what Matt Doherty like at left back. You wouldn't he, move Seamus Coleman to left back? I think I'd move Matt Doherty left back. Well, like we've, I've, I've certainly never seen him play there, so it's hard to tell. Like The thing with Matt Doherty is that his strength is obviously... Two seasons, Doherty, did. I, like the, the thing is, the strength of Matt Doherty is coming onto the ball. It's like if you play Matt Doherty at right midfield, he'd be a hell of a lot worse than him at left back, for example. I mean, can't you just like, you know, work it so that you you get the ball and you give it and then you do a little sexton loop and then you're coming onto it? You know, I mean, surely you can work this out. You're smart. You've got like big brains and lots of, lots of time to chat about. You're going to get the ball in a slightly different position on the right side of midfield. If you need it to be coming on, work out a way with Coleman and the midfield so that you can position it. That you, that's like it's doable. But like, I don't, I don't out, buy right? into this idea that Coleman is in any danger of losing his place at international level because a lot of... He's the ringleader for this. He's but a lot the of the players we have... I didn't say he should lose his place. booster in chief. Aren't playing regularly in their teams. Like most of the time O'Neill picked a team, he was playing with guys and he constantly referred to it that they don't play regularly in upper club football but when they come to Ireland they play very well so that is why I play them. I think Coleman's probably the victim of his own success in that he's had a remarkable stretch of consistency and being a regular player and at his first dip in form or serious dip in form it's like we're so quick to jettison him it's crazy he's, I'm not he's saying to jettison him I'm saying it should, it should be a consideration for the management that if you, if you are going to play a flat back four and it's between Coleman and Matt Doherty you just have to consider it it's simple as that I'm not saying like if I was making the decision chances are I might fall down and decide to Seamus Coleman and pick him but I'm certainly considering Matt Doherty well, you consider him when you, the same way you, you'd consider Cyrus Christie or you consider... Any, better than Cyrus Christie. Yeah, but you, you consider everyone when you're playing, surely. But at the same time, the, the idea that um, because his club have decided that his form is not good enough to pick him, that's fine, that's understandable. But he's never put a foot wrong for Ireland. Mm. Yeah. No, the, absolutely. So that, give him a chance. Not, that's why I'm if, not if, saying if, to Chedison. If, if, if he plays poorly for Ireland, then it's a different, it's a different conversation, it's a different consideration. But he's, the, he's a guy that has always given everything for his country and I don't think we should jettison him. I think we should give him a chance to, to prove his form. Certainly Matt Doherty should be in the conversation. But well, Jeremy, good thing, good thing Jeremy, nobody has said this morning to jettison him, so that's the, that's the positive. No, no, Everton yeah, fans are ready to jettison him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, a reminder that Off the Ball is back on the airwaves from 7 o'clock tonight on News Talk. Brian just goes in studio for Wednesday Night Rugby. There's all of tonight's football to uh, bring you through as well. We're back tomorrow morning on OTB AM from 7.45am. You can watch us live on YouTube, on Facebook or on Twitter. You can listen live over at offtheball.com. We fixed it now so that you can uh, just listen to the show and get about the rest of your uh, daily business um, and the sound should continue. You can podcast the show from 10am on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever it is that you get your pods. And of course, you can check out our brand new home, offtheball.com, for all your sports needs. We'll see you tomorrow. Good luck. So if you like this, you'll probably also like OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45am.